0: Hey everybody, Magnus here. At the time that this episode is released, I'm going to be gearing up for a little bit of a road trip. Now, for those of you who are so concerned, no, this is not going to interfere with the release schedule of *Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. So there's a little bit of good news, but basically what's going on is I'm going to be taking a little bit of a road trip, as I say, and... The destination is Odessa, Texas. Now, for those of you who aren't up on your Magnus trivia, that's actually the town of my birth. Yes, indeed. This is the same place in which the book and later the movie, Friday Night Lights, were set. That's where I was born. And in fact, I actually knew some of the people who were in, or, or at least inspired, Friday Night Lights when I, was a, when I was a kid. So, for those of you who are interested in meaningless trivia like that, well, there you go. Anyway, basically the purpose for all of this is I'm going to be attending my aunt's wedding. You know, there's a lot of bullshit going on there that I'll spare you, but suffice it to say, she's getting married and I'm going to be attending. At least that's the plan. So... Oddly enough, what I find I'm most looking forward to isn't so much seeing family, although there is that. I mean, I haven't actually seen some of these people in a pretty long fucking time, so I should be pretty excited about that. And indeed I am. It's just that that's not really the high point of things as far as I'm concerned. Nope. Basically, what I'm most looking forward to is a trip to a fast food chain, which you can find only in West Texas, and it's called Taco Villa. Now, for those of you who have never had a chance to sample the culinary delights of Taco Villa, allow me to expound upon them. Basically, my usual order whenever I go to Taco Villa is a taco burger an order of nachos, hold the jalapenos, and a combination burrito with extra cheese, extra sauce, and extra cheese. That is usually what I order when I go to Taco Villa. And I can fairly well say that there is no direct competitor out there for Taco Villa, at least as far as price and quality are concerned. People may want to instinctively compare Taco Villa to Taco Bell. I can assure you the two have nothing in common. You have no business comparing those two entities to one another. And that's primarily what I'm going to be looking forward to because what I expect is I'm going to be spending a fair amount of time at Taco Villa while I'm in Odessa. Now, I really wish I could say that I don't know that this is one or at least the least important reason for me to make this road trip. And like I say, I mean, ultimately, what I'm really there to do is go to my my aunt's wedding. And indeed, I am looking forward to that. It promises to be quite enjoyable. But as I say, what I'm really looking forward to is just getting that small, tiny little piece of home, you know, There's a weird comforting effect that food can have on the human psychology. I'm not the first to observe this, and I'm for sure not going to be the one who can adequately explain the phenomenon, but no one can really deny that people receive a certain amount of solace, maybe is the word, from the... Not just food, but specifically food to which they have a strong sentimental attachment. Now, as it goes for me, my comfort food is not only extremely delicious, but it's also incredibly rare, which makes these trips to West Texas so valuable. And like I say, there's really nothing to quite compare when it comes to, I guess how much affection, and I would say, in a weird, fucked up kind of way, nostalgia I have for the Taco Villa combination burrito. I mean, in a weird kind of way, it feels almost inappropriate to have this much affection for food. For food. But somehow, this is the hand that I've been dealt. And like I say, my usual order is a taco burger, a... A, uh, an order of nachos, and a combination burrito with extra cheese, extra sauce, and extra cheese. And for some reason, that specific configuration of food, which by the way, this also includes a large Dr. Pepper, but somehow that precise configuration of food, I don't know why, and I don't pretend that it's normal, or for that matter, I don't pretend that it's appropriate, that specific array of food never fails to to somehow, I don't know, comfort me, you know? And I'll be the first one to admit, like I say, that there's a weird bit of psychology that your food can somehow bring solace to you, or comfort, or reassurance, or something. But somehow it does, and in a weird kind of way, it... It's one of life's great tragedies that I can't get this here in Houston. The only way I can really avail myself of Taco Villa is when I go to West Texas on these rare excursions and then I get to load up to it. I haven't actually set foot in Odessa in 10 years at this point. And I'm just really looking forward to it is what I'm saying, you know? And I don't know why, I don't pretend that it's normal, I especially don't pretend that it's healthy, but for some reason, eating this food never fails to bring, I don't know, comfort, I guess, which could be why they call it comfort food. Whatever. Now enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art.
2: His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow
1: sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
0: Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and today, I'm continuing an epic mega-series of epic meganess. You see, we're getting closer, ever closer, to the theatrical release of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And I'm not going to bullshit any of it, alright? A Superman-Batman team-up film is something I've wanted for over 25 years now, so because of... Because of the anticipation of all this i've decided to launch this epic mega series that celebrates what batman and superman are all about and so the plan for right now is to alternate episodes batman gets an episode then superman gets one then batman then superman and so forth right and as i go through all of this it, it's occurred to me that there's a lot of disco potential to talking about various of Superman's publishing eras, because there are tons of amazing Superman stories out there, and if you ask me, just about every era of Superman deserves some kind of appreciation. But anyway, I'm going to have company for a few of these episodes, really as many as, as possible. A podcasting vassal has generously decided to join in with me for a lot of these Batman Superman shows. And unfortunately it just because of logistics and his schedule and everything, it can't be all of them, but it's gonna be as many as we can as we can manage. So <clears throat> not gonna screw around a whole lot this week. I'm just gonna introduce John M. Wilson from the Avengers Inspirations podcast. He's here to join me for this episode and he's gonna be back for several more in, in, in uh, this mega series in the future so John welcome back and thank you again for donating so much of your time to this really appreciate it
3: looking forward to it as long as after we're done you, get, you, you let me get to punch the reality a little bit
0: yeah, you know, um, I've listened back to, uh, as I've done QC checks for some of our stuff, I almost feel like I've sort of interrupted you a few times, so I'm going to try like crazy to not interrupt you at all, let you say literally everything that's on your mind just kind of back off of you a little bit this time around. How's that sound?
3: Well, well I've never felt interrupted, so, so that's a fine.
0: Oh, very good, very good. So uh, we're going to be talking about two comics this, uh, this week, so what's the first one that we've got on the docket here?
3: Oh, you caught me with my uh, iPad off. Um, Hold on one second. That's like the electronic version of Pants Down. Okay, (laughs) so we have two issues of Superman from the early 1970s. And the first one is the fantastically covered issue 248 with a cover date of February 1972 which uh, the Spider-Man fan in me immediately clues into that's thats close to around the time that, that Gwen Stacy died and um, also Roy Thomas is getting his Jesus Christ metaphor comic Adam Warlock off the ground so, uh, so yeah lots of good stuff happening in comics and Superman 240 hits the stands and it's fantastic and we're going to talk about it
0: Yeah, actually, I meant to ask you about this cover, if you don't mind. Um, Who, is this Murphy Anderson? Uh, Who drew this cover?
3: It, I have, sorry.
0: Uh, While uh, John checks into that, uh, for those of you who aren't looking at it right now, it's basically Lex Luthor sort of wandering around the streets of Metropolis, what's left of him. Um, It looks like basically uh, Terminator 3, the day after.
3: Um, yeah, yeah.
0: And there's just nothing left. Literally, the city's burning. And you've got Lex sta- shaking his fist at a battered, damaged statue of Superman saying, Blast you, Superman. You deserve to die. It's your fault I killed everyone on Earth. And it's just a really cool sort of grab. It's almost like the, the comic book, the 1970s Bronze Age comic book equivalent of, uh, of a clickbait headline. It's supposed to be a, a cover you just can't walk away from killed everybody on earth what the hell
3: yeah and superman covers were known for this kind of thing just to grab you in and hook you in the thing is that so many of the most fantastic and unbelievable covers of superman are um they're either imaginary stories or there's some minor scene that's being twisted a bit on the cover for drama's sake Mm -hmm. but no this is This really is the setup of the story. Everybody on Earth is dead except for Luthor. And um, this is a Swanderson cover. It's a Swan-Anderson mixture. Um, But it does look a bit, I don't know, neater and, and sharper than the inside art. So I don't know if Anderson inked it a bit more liberally for his own style than for swans. I don't know.
0: Well, I don't either. Um, But it's one of those things. It didn't look completely like Kurt Swan to me. So anytime I see something that looks Swan-ish, but less so, I always just kind of default to thinking, oh, well, this must have been Murphy Anderson all by himself. So, well, whatever. To get into the story proper, uh, page one, we've got uh, Lex Luthor sort of wandering around through his Luthers lair. And he's basically thinking to himself, I would say he's knowing what I do about the story, I mean, he's at this point kind of verging on going into shock slash slightly panicked. But basically what he's trying to do is set up a record. He's got this great giant floaty recording device that he's invented because Lex Luthor, but also because 1970s, you know, it wasn't like today where you can just use your iPhone for dictation. Back then, if you wanted to have, you know, a sort of high-tech badass sort of uh, dictation device, you pretty much had to be a be a a, an evil super criminal genius in order to build your own because god knows you couldn't go to radio shack and get one
3: and you had to have like big spacious places to do that like lex luthor's lair or dr Doom's giant castle because both of these men are are like born to monologue
0: and i gotta tell you yeah nobody nobody does it better than those two and and it it does kind of raise the question you know since you since you brought up dr doom is the is the Doom Reed Richards relationship in the Marvel universe, is that basically their closest approximation of the of the Luther Superman relationship, do you think?
3: Hmm. You know, I think so. There's there's the same level of envy slash hatred on the part of the villain in both of those pairs. Um the the good guy is just doing and using his internal abilities to the best he can for the benefit of mankind, with with zero thought of reward. I mean, Mister Fantastic is is you know his marital choices and selfishness aside, he's pretty damn altruistic when it comes to why he does science. He wants to do science to make things better. Right. Um. You know, forget his wife and family in the process, but we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, you know what? Maybe we should. <laughs> but you know, it's. I, I like that parallel. I had never really thought about that before. Because usually whenever I think of Superman in a Marvel sense, I think of some blend of Spider-Man and Captain America.
0: Hmm.
3: Um but but yeah. Oh,
0: fair enough. Well, speaking of monologuing, you've got Lex, he's basically for the for the benefit of the uh, of the reader, he's sort of breaking down what it is that's happened. And now and then, especially in the Bronze Age, you know, characters would have this dialogue that it's it's kind of funny in that it's it serves a double purpose. Number one, it ex, it tells you a lot about what's what's happening with the narrative, but it it also cuts right to character. And this is a classic example of dialogue or perhaps monologue that does both. Lex says, "Most of my life has been spent in conflict with a Kryptonian called Superman, a battle of wits that inexplicably resulted." Time and again in my defeat. Now, at last, that struggle has ended. A short while ago, as a result of my ultimate creation, I destroyed this so-called man of steel. But, and then we flip over to page two. But in doing so, I became, and this is the title of the story. But in doing so, I became the man who murdered the earth. And we see Lex, seeing he's looking at this just fucking ginormous. Uh, I don't know if this is supposed to be a television or a computer monitor or what, but it's basically, like I said before, Terminator 3, the morning after. It's basically the metropolis skyline, and it's completely destroyed. It's totally wrecked. The city's fucking burning. There's no way that living beings can survive this amount of destruction, devastation, smoke, heat, all that shit, right? Right. People are dead, and it's really as simple as that. And what you kind of are supposed to infer from this is this is just a microcosm of what's happened everywhere in the entire world as a direct result of Lex Luthor's actions. And, and go ahead.
3: I love there. There's some things about this that I love. First of all, like I said earlier, this is not an imaginary story. So we have no disclaimer at the front of. In fact, this is kind of past the era of imaginary stories because that was mostly a Silver Age thing. But usually in the Silver Age, when they wanted to do a story that had sort of an over-the-top um, introduction that they were actually going to go with, they would say, this is not an imaginary story. And so this issue does not have that disclaimer And and we're past that era. So we're just – this is the story. This is really what's happening. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And also, okay, he destroyed Superman. That's awesome. But he destroyed the entire human race as well. Talk about your Pyrrhic victory.
0: Yeah, and that is actually – it's funny you should mention that because that's exactly where I wanted to take the conversation. There's a sort of um, caption – a narration caption at the, I can't say the bottom of the page, but sort of on the side of the page. And it says, Lex Luthor pauses once again as he silently studies the scene of utter devastation that stretches out before him and teardrops glisten at the corner of his eyes. I love that. And this, like I was saying, goes straight to character in as much as Lex Luthor has it in for Superman. That's not exactly breaking news to anybody, or it shouldn't be anyway. If it is, you're obviously a rookie Superman fan, so you're listening to the right podcast. But here's the thing, especially in in the Bronze Age, the Silver Age for sure. And to my surprise, when I was reading the Bronze Age Superman, you know, the monthly comic Superman for the first time, especially in the Bronze Age too, Lex Luthor is out to prove number one, who's the better man, and number two, no no apologies about it, he wants to kill Superman. That does not necessarily mean that he's just this evil, murdering psychopath and he just wants to kill anybody who can, fuck anybody who gets in his way. They're just uh, cattle, you know, they're just collateral damage and fuck them. That is not where he's coming from at all. And the fact that he's sitting here talking about having killed every person on the face of the planet, this is not cause for celebration for him. This is in a weird twisted kind of way the ultimate defeat because yeah I'm you know he's talking about how he's killed Superman which is what he says he wants but he's also killed everybody on the face he's acknowledging that he's killed everybody on the face of the earth as well which is not what he wanted and this I, it's just it's one of those moments that goes straight to character he's not evil for the sake of being evil he's evil. And and I've railed against this sort of thing in the past, so I don't want to sound like I've got a double standard here. There are times when uh, the bad guy, you know, the villain that has an agenda of his own, and it's not necessarily, you know, murder for murder's sake, it's murder to achieve a, a, a particular goal. Sometimes that really pisses me off. What's wrong with just being evil? But this is one of those times when it really does kind of bolster Lex's character. He's not out to kill as many people as possible, necessarily. What he wants to do is. Like I said, show who's the better man, and then in the bargain, kill Superman. But he, that that's a very limited type of thing that he wants to do. Um, would you agree with that?
3: Yeah. And, and What you were saying about villains, I was thinking about, okay, so one of the most reviled names in modern history is Adolf Hitler. Okay, so we could, if we wanted to, research Hitler's early life. As a boy, as a young artist and everything else, and and follow the steps to his, you know, becoming a ruthless dictator who, you know, genocided on a daily basis. And in so doing, we would find some humanity and find some some reason and maybe start to sympathize with the guy just a little bit. But would we really want to do that? Is there really any purpose to to humanizing Hitler? I mean, why would you do that? And so a lot of villains in comics are the same way. They're just they're just bad. That's the way the story goes, and that's why we read them. Let them be bad. I do like, though, when Luthor gets some nuance because he is just one of those few that that needs to have a little bit of dimension to him. And I do like that. And I love the second paragraph on that page where it goes through his memories mm-hmm. because I'm just going to take this, this one little thing at a time because it says there will be no more gray walls and tasteless prison food. If you think about how much of Luthor's life has been spent in prison, he's had a very dreary, dull and and tasteless life living in prison. Every now and then he gets out, and it's awesome, and he escapes, and there's thrills and everything. And he fights Superman and he tries to, you know, stop his nemesis, whatever. And those are like really exciting times for him but neither the neither the the dullness nor the excitement will ever be experienced again because it says the last and most numbing thought of all no more superman and it's like it's when you have something in your life that you're <sighs> That you're really stressing about because you have to get done or that there's an event that's coming that you're really dreading or or, or there's something in your future that your mind is spending a lot of emotional energy on. Mm -hmm. And it finally passes. And it feels strange because you don't really know how to think or feel because you're you no longer are spending the mental emotional energy on that. But it feels kind of empty in your head now. And it just is kind of strange um but that's where he is now he has his entire life has been about one thing and that thing is now gone
0: yeah and this is a guy who clearly hasn't really thought too much about the and then what you know once you achieve your goal then what you know so
3: he was probably hoping for recognition but now that's not gonna happen
0: (laughs) yeah or any recognition he does get is Probably not exactly what he had in mind. I mean, here's a guy who probably doesn't mind being thought of on a, as a murderer on some level, not to quite the level that he's talking about here, where he's wiped out the the world's entire population. I mean, that's you don't come back from something like that, you know.
3: Who is he even recording this for? Whoever um, finds this tape,
0: it's it's a kind of an archetype of. Uh, Scientific geniuses or really anybody with a scientific bent in fiction, I find that they have got to establish a record, even if nobody ever hears it, the record itself has got to exist. And so like that to me is like the character dynamic that's going on here. Realistically, the the more mechanical thing that's going on is Lex has got to exposit for the sake of the reader exactly what's happened. You know, when right, yeah, that go ahead.
3: Yes. Yeah, so yeah, you're right. That's there. Yeah, just Lynn, it seems a little bit. Odd that he, I don't know if he's thinking aliens might find it, or.
0: Well, and know. let's face it, that's not exactly a an unrealistic thing. I mean, you know, it,
3: this it is comics.
0: Like, yeah, and it seems like you know, hey, it's Tuesday. You know, better have an alien invasion. So.
3: <laughs> you or know, we'll make our own.
0: <laughs> and you know, it's. I don't want to pick apart the um, the you know, the, the plot mechanics here too much because I don't want it to come off like I'm nitpicking Lin Ween. He had to tell a dramatic story and then he had to tell a dramatic story in a dramatic way. And if this is the story that you're telling, it makes sense to start sort of in media res where Lex is talking about having killed everybody on the planet except himself. And then we get a flashback that explains how exactly this all happened. And I guess in relation to that, it's kind of hard to ignore the frankenstein parallel that's going on here where you've got dr frankenstein using lightning to uh, bring life uh to this inanimate matter that he's cobbled together and on he the one it's
3: frankenstein reference yeah it's like anything frankenstein could do i could do better and i'm like um dude frankenstein wasn't real <laughs> mm, yeah well uh details. maybe in the comics he was though
0: would, you know, details, details, that's how I think of it, you know, don't think too much about the details, or, <laughs> or else head head hurt, owl. so, basically what we see is this uh, humanoid-shaped body covered in this uh, cover, <laughs> and you've got Lex, again, sort of standing, standing around mon- monologuing, must have more galactic energy, enough to breathe life into my creation. Gasp! It is moving now! You know, and he's basically narrating what we can see happening on the page, and it's just, it's a very Bronze Age thing. You know, we mm-hmm. have these this sort of unnecessary narration stuff that we can fucking see for ourselves is happening, but they narrate it anyway because comics. And you flip over to page five, and rising off of the platform is what Lex is called the Galactic Golem. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead, number one, in the story, but number two, of this issue. But as I was rereading both of the issues that we're going to be talking about today, one of the things that kind of occurred to me is that you could draw some fairly straight lines, conceptually speaking, between the galactic golem in 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 1972 and doomsday in 1992. What do you think?
3: interesting yeah you really could i wonder um i wonder if there was some intent on the part of the writers if there was some inspiration going on there not like i'm going to you know hack some other guy's work but just you know ideas in people's heads because the people who wrote the comics in the 90s grew up with the comics in the 70s so huh i wonder
0: yeah, and especially the um, the the part that really made this sink in for me. This is a, a a creature that's genetically engineered to kill Superman. You know, he's capable, at least theoretically, of doing that. You know, and I don't know. It just it felt a little too similar. I at least wanted to float the possibility, but just keep that in mind as you as you know you and I work through these two issues. I just want to get your your thoughts on it now. Obviously, there's a very different conclusion here, as opposed right. to the doomsday storyline. But I just wanted to put put it all out there.
3: But it's not too. It's only different in the reveal of how it all works. It's pretty darn similar in, you know, what we think actually happens. Right. But but yeah, I I've always liked the word and the idea of a golem. Um, the the word is Hebrew, and it, it goes back to um hebrew myths which if ever if you've ever studied hebrew myth there's there's a word for that is that is that mythology trent
0: the study of it is
3: yes (laughs) (laughs) so if you remember your study of hebrew myth if you remember your hebrew mythology golems you know they're where you take mud and earth and form it into a creature and use magic or the power of the gods to bring them to life um in fact, there's a really cool early 20th century fantasy novel called Figures of Earth that I read that introduced me to the word and the idea. Um, so I love that they're using that here. I like the design of this creature. It's called the Galactic Golem. And the whole galactic power thing is a bit nebulous and a bit undefined. He's he's attracted to star power or to nuclear power or something like that. I think he's just attracted to general, you know large amounts of energy of any sort. But he looks like his skin looks like um, Eternity from Marvel. Like there are stars and galaxies in his body. Yes. And I I don't really know what that means or why that's there or how that works. His design bears nothing on his actual, you know, what he does. It's just a really, really cool looking design.
0: Right. And, you know, when you read these stories, you know, uh, especially when they're kind of done in shorthand like this, You know, interpretation is not only inevitable, it's kind of desirable. And so what I took from this is that we're not actually seeing the creature's physical form. The creature's physical form is showing us a portal into just some random spot in the cosmos. And so, but this isn't actually what the creature's made out of. It's just this creature's power is actually broadcasting a window elsewhere. So, yeah, we see his eyeballs and things, but, you know... His skin is actually showing us. It's almost like it's a window into um, another part of the galaxy, or another part of the universe, or wh- however you want to put it.
3: And, well, the idea that Luthor made something like that becomes even more amazing. Well,
0: yeah, and it and it, it again, it kind of speaks to you know just how brilliant this Luthor really is. And to me, you know, one of the things that I kind of struggled with this is not to shit on the Burn Age you understand and it's not to shit on smallville or any of those other things but the the whole idea of the pre-crisis lex luthor is that this is a guy who's smart enough somehow to stand toe to toe with brainiac and at least in those other iterations of superman it's it's kind of hard to believe that version of lex luthor could be brainiac's intellectual equal there may be other purposes that brainiac would want to would want to team up with luthor it's not going to be his brains here. It would be because of his brains. He's bringing his own genius to the table. And this is one of those stories that it's not intended to, to say anything about the Luther Brainiac team, except to say that at least for me, I could buy that. You know what? Somebody as brilliant and powerful as Brainiac would still stoop to teaming up with a lowly human because that's how brilliant this guy is. And so that, that works for me. It's it's easy for me to believe that Lex can do can do something like this precisely because of the fact he's half of the Brainiac Luther team. So whatever you want to do with that.
3: Yeah, um, the Luthor of post crisis is definitely a brilliant guy and he he makes occasional references to having passed scientific stuff and, and later in the two thousands that comes out a lot more. But but yeah, you don't really think that his area of expertise and the kinds of and the kinds of genius lines that his brain flows along are the scientific bent. Right. You know? So so yeah, I, I agree with that.
0: From there, uh, the galactic golem, uh, Frankenstein style, gets up off the platform, wanders out the door, and
3: finds a girl by a lake in a little dress and doesn't eat her. Oh yeah, wait, pr- no, that's that actually is Frankenstein. Sorry. <laughs>
0: He goes off searching for nourishment, as John was saying a while ago. He's basically drawn to power, like these vast, powerful forms of energy, right? And so, what Lex decides to do is target the golem at Superman. Uh, Superman's off doing the celebrity golf tournament.
3: Uh, I've never seen Superman play golf before. This is my first.
0: Yeah, ditto, actually. <clears throat> and you know what? I've actually got a little bit of. Uh, something to say about Superman playing golf, but we'll come back to that in just a minute. Lex blasts Superman with this invisible laser, the, the idea of which this is basically designed to be bait for the golem to track Superman down and lay waste, basically is, is what this is all about. But in the moment, what Superman's doing is this celebrity golf tournament where he tees off uh, with this oversized golf club. He smacks an oversized golf ball Directly into a uh, a hole on one, uh, or rather a hole in one, um, inside of the Copernicus crater on the moon, and this is one of those just sort of quintessential pre-crisis moments. It's not enough that Superman, I don't know, drives the ball like a mile or two, as it probably would be in the Silver Age. No, he's got to drive it all the way to the fucking moon, and <laughs> this is the sort of thing that you'd see all the time in the silver agent i just eat this up with a spoon i love it it's great
3: it's funny how he can turn one of the most boring things i've ever found to watch on tv and actually make it interesting
0: but what he's doing is still grounded in the day-to-day it's just amplified and taken to like this ridiculous extreme but it's still something that i think most people can relate to you know yeah and that is to me that's the genius of the pre-crisis Superman, he was doing all the same bullshit that we do. He just does it on a much bigger scale. But, you know, at the end of the day, here's a guy that, that still clips his toenails. He just finds the most extreme Rube Goldberg on steroids (laughs) way of doing it. You know?
3: Oh, that reminds me. There are so many 1950s stories, um, I guess pre silver age, but post golden age, those 1950s where, I don't know how many people have actually read a lot of that, but, Superboy more so, but Superman also would anytime they wanted to do something, they would, they would have to build something giant to do it. Like you're going to dig a hole. I'm going to build a giant steam shovel crane arm out of the metals of this mountain and dig the hole. Um, you, you want to, you want to fill a, a giant lake with water. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build this really, really giant. I don't know. Water pump. He did this. So, much, so many times in the uh, in the 50s that seeing the giant golf club and giant golf ball here was was reminiscent of that.
0: <clears throat> yeah, and the the whole sort of shtick of the Bronze Age is that it tells the same... As far as continuity is concerned, what we're supposed to assume is that this is pretty much the same version of those characters, Superman in this case. they They just don't do the same types of supposedly silly things that they did in the Bronze Age.
3: Yeah continuity hasn't changed we've just changed storytelling sensibilities exactly that and this is one of those neat
0: little reminders that that says no these are still the same characters we're just telling different types of stories in that same in that same um, set of that basically that same continuity that same milieu and um, it's to me it's everything that makes the Bronze Age great if yeah uh, in, in my opinion plus let's face it you've got Lois Lane where in the 70s riffic uh, or 60s riffic, I guess, uh, sort of mini, and I don't know why. There's something about Lois Lane wearing that kind of a dress. I just, I just really love it. I mean, because I don't associate Lois as being a, um, with being this sort of 60s icon or a 70s icon. To me, Lois Lane is timeless, and she has to be because she's this big iconic character, and She's got to be able to fit into every era on her own merits, you know. So to confine her to one particular era in history, to me, is to kind of do the character a disservice. That having been said, though, there's something, there's a, there's just something that's so freaking cool about her wearing that 60s style mini dress. I just, and she's got like the, the, the that I don't even know what the hell kind of haircut that's supposed to be or what you call it. But she's got that going. She's rocking the knee-high boots. It's just friggin' cool. I love it. I, you only get that little glimpse of it at the bottom of page seven, but I friggin' love it. It's awesome.
3: Yeah. I'm not sure exactly if newswomen of the day would be wearing stuff like that. Maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't. I don't know. But I do like it, especially that bottom right panel because you've got like the full figure drawing. You've got the dress. You've got the boots. It's just – I mean what it is is it's sexy as hell. But not in a um, leave nothing to the imagination way, you know.
0: Right, and you know it, it's kind of a weird thing if you think about it. What I've realized, what I've come to understand, is that people don't mind seeing Lois Lane win a Pulitzer Prize. They don't mind seeing Lois get all up in Superman's grill and tell him how it, you know, how it is. Um, there are tons of things people love seeing Lois Lane do. Tons of things they love seeing Lois Lane be except sexy you know for some reason she has become like i said i don't know if it's i don't know if iconic is even the right word anymore but she's become this sort of indefinable something now and i think it actually kind of bothers there's a group of people out there it really bothers them to see lois played sexy or portrayed sexy or having sexual impulses the way that a just a normal human is probably going to have them you know and on the one hand, I don't want to tell those people that they're wrong, but on the other hand, as I say, you know, having sexual impulses and or, or wanting to look attractive or what have you—that's just a normal human trait. And Lois is human, when all's said and done, or supposed to be anyway. She's fictionally human, and I—I I don't know. And it's just of all things, it's—and it, it kind of makes me wonder. You know, I've never heard anyone criticize this era of Lois Lane for dressing sexy, and so it just makes me wonder. You know. Maybe everyone else loves seeing this too, so we're willing to give her a pass here. (laughs) I don't know.
3: Could be. I think, honestly, I think the Bronze Age of Superman gets overlooked a lot. I honestly don't know a whole lot about it and don't hear people talk about it much. And I think when Charlie Niemeyer was doing his Superman of the Bronze Age podcast, one of his goals was just the fact that, you know what, there's more to Superman of the Bronze Age than Kryptonite Nevermore. Yes. And the Alan Moore annuals, you know, there's, there's more going on there. And this is the era that spawned Superman, the movie and Superman 2. Yes. So there's, there's a lot to be said here. And I, I'm really looking forward to getting here in my Superman read through. It's like as much as I love the silver age mm-hmm. and I do, um, as I've gotten into the heart of the silver age, I've, I've just grown to love it more and more, um, it makes me want to read the Bronze Age because I want the continuity and and the the mythos that we're building and the the um, set of the word rules is not the right word but just just the things that make this era of Superman different to say post Crisis or post Flashpoint or Golden Age the you know all the different eras of Superman we have mm-hmm. this kind of Superman but being told with a more modern sensibility you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, as far as lowest dressing sexy, there's just a, there's just a push to make sure that women characters are established as people before they're established as sex objects. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that for instance, man of steel, that relationship never had a chance to get romantic. If if Clark and Lois go out on a date in Batman v Superman, she better be looking sexy and I am sure that she will be. But first they had to establish her as, you know, a professional and go-getter and accomplisher first, which I think is I think is good.
0: Yeah.
3: But um
0: <clears throat> Well, to go back to your point for just a just a moment, um bef- uh, my introduction to the Bronze Age uh and this is about probably about as good a segue as we're going to find. My introduction to the Bronze Age was uh, this trade paperback called Superman in the 70s, and pretty much all through the 70s, you had Superman to varying degrees in the Bronze Age. So this this issue that we're that we're working through right now was one of the stories that was reprinted there, and that was actually the first time that I read it, and. All of the things that you mentioned, uh, you know vis-a-vis mythos and continuity that had been established in the in the Silver Age being translated and I would say in, in many ways sort of enhanced but at the same time grounded and made a little bit more mature. you can't really escape that you know as you as you go through uh, really the Bronze Age in its entirety but um, you get it you get a nice little sample of that with the Superman and the Bronze Age. A trade paperback, and this story in particular, it it there was something about reading it that made me think, you know, there was this story is a little bit too balls out for for the Silver Age. I don't know that you could have published this story exactly as it is back in the Silver Age,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and here it works because uh, the you know the whole like I say the whole shtick of of the uh, of, of the bronze age is that this is supposed to be a little bit more mature comics readers have, have become more mature and let's not overlook the obvious dc has now really got to compete with uh, with marvel and i to this day i regard the bronze age as their most creatively successful effort in doing so and uh, i just i just i i like you i I mean, I have read. I think a, a really decent chunk of the uh, of the Bronze Age, and I, I, on the one hand, I don't want to build up your expectations too much because then nothing can satisfy you. But on the other <laughs> hand, I do want to tell you there is this temptation to say it's everything you're imagining it to be, you know. But uh, anyway, um, so at the celebrity golf tournament, uh, the the golem shows up, and so Superman has to you know chase Lois out of there. At which time he and the Golem have this sort of battle royale. And one of the things that becomes very apparent is that the Golem is one of the very few uh, opponents, I guess, that Superman's ever gone up against that is more than capable of holding his own against him. I mean this isn't going to be a little skirmish that Superman's finished up with by the third panel – He's uh, because of the fact that it's you know it's Superman's comic. You can pretty well figure he's gonna win. But in this moment, what you realize is, yeah, he's probably gonna win. He's gonna have to earn it,
1: mm-hmm. and uh,
0: this isn't gonna be just in. This is not gonna be a coffee break by by any stretch of the imagination. And in, and in fact, I guess like the proof is in the pudding on that because at, uh, on the very last panel, like in or in the very last panel at the bottom of page nine. Superman actually thinks to himself, I don't know how to stop this thing, you know, and this perception or prejudice or whatever you want to call it about Superman that I've had all my life is that he is never without a plan. You know, he may not necessarily have a fully formed plan or he doesn't know completely how he's going to win yet, but he knows what he's doing. And here we have Superman saying, I don't know. And when it comes to my inner eight-year-old, that's a very scary thing to hear. Superman doesn't know. I don't know why, but that's very unnerving. Uh, there, That was very unnerving for me when I was eight, you know, or would have been.
3: Well, it should be. I mean, he's spent, what, 40 years, 35 years establishing that he can do anything he wants. Superman has the power levels demanded by the plot. And, and he can't hear um and probably not helping his thought process is the fact that lex luthor has some sort of microphone hooked up in this thing where he's he's projecting his own voice through the golem and taunting superman Hmm. he even he even quotes little red riding hood which is kind of kind of weird (laughs) um he blasts him with energy and superman's like helps keep my uniform clean and he's like all the better to bury you with kryptonian (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, that, and that, that was a kind of funny moment Yeah, that's a little, the Little Red Riding Hood moment of the issue <laughs> No question about it
3: But yeah, Superman is, is not sure And what I like is that that bit of uncertainty And that bit of um, insecurity Jives with the end of the episode Because they sort of, as we're going to get to in a moment They sort of trick this creature They don't beat him, they trick him and uh, and so, yeah.
0: <clears throat> and the other thing about this issue that I think is, when you think about it, it's really it's really ballsy. We've got a, uh, it, it's really, a, I think, a pretty intense fight that starts on, this is on uh, page eight, and it goes for several pages. Now, keep in mind, guys, this is the Silver Age, right? This is a time when, you know, yes, stories are more mature and they're more grounded and all this other stuff, but at the end of the day, these are still stories that tend to be wrapped up in uh, in just one issue, and here we have a we have a battle that goes. It's a pretty intense, pitched battle that goes for like four pages or five pages or something like that, and that's a lot of real estate for a for a one and done story. And so, yeah, it definitely fulfills the action quotient of what's going on in uh, in this story, but that's also a hell of a big risk to take because of the fact that. Again, you've only got you know, just those uh, – for this story, let's see. Uh, this
3: 18 pages.
0: Yeah, this is an 18-page story, right. And so for four of those pages to be devoted to nothing but this really intense pitched battle, and let's face it, any fight, no matter how big and uproarious it might be, it's always going to be kind of one note. People are punching each other, and on every page you have to find different ways for them to punch each other. And so to spend that much time on something so repetitive, much like the statements I'm making right now, that's ballsy. So <laughs> anyway, that's how repetitive it all is. And that's ballsy because that's how repetitive it all is. So
3: That's just how they roll, motherfuckers. <laughs> you know how I roll, motherfuckers? How's that? I push Oedipus down a hill. That's how I roll, motherfuckers.
0: <laughs> oh, that's Sorry. a good one. Yep. <laughs> and then, as we were saying a moment ago, Superman – doesn't know how to how to beat this creature. And so what he does is he improvises, and he ends up getting punched clear across town or zapped out of the sky, actually. Um, crashes into what looks like a construction site, Shades of Man of Steel, the film. And <clears throat> at this point, he's pretty much using his surroundings. Uh, he's improvising, and he's using his surroundings to, to his advantage. And he chunks this giant metal fucker at the at the golem's head and the golem blocks it and that creates a sort of moment of inspiration for Superman I mean what do you think of that
3: yeah it it, there's not very much attention drawn to it when it happens but then you call back to it in a minute I just you mentioned shades of man of steel but also shades of like you said earlier doomsday Mm -hmm. the caption says the sound of his impact was enough to shock the city Mm mm-hmm Which very much mirrors the narration of Superman 75. Yes, it does. The shockwaves of their their, uh, blows, you know, echoing throughout the city. So, yeah, um, this is a pretty darn intense fight and Luthor is ranting and raving, but then Superman gets the idea in a little cloud bubble. Wait, I've got it. It's a spot that strange marking in the center of his forehead, which makes me wonder, okay, so Luthor built this thing. Why did he give it a weakness or, or – I don't know. What was his thought when he put that mark slash hole slash whatever it is in the golem's forehead?
0: Um, what I – what I, there's, I don't think there's anything in the story that comes right out and, and, and says this. But what I took from the story is that Luthor basically captured the power of the cosmos – It's not like he perfectly genetically engineered this thing. And so it's going to have weaknesses that Luther didn't necessarily intend. Or it's going to have strengths that Luther didn't necessarily intend. I mean, I don't think he completely understood the magic he was playing with.
3: So in, in getting something to work, he didn't realize what he'd actually done in the process.
0: Exactly that. I don't think he was working from a set of blueprints. He was working off a set of theories. And whenever you or let me rephrase that because theory is actually from a scientific standpoint that's real, probably not the best word to use uh, he was working off a series of uh, presumptions and conjectures and so he didn't necessarily know how this was going to turn out you know he had a reasonable belief that this was going that this was going to work he just may not have known precisely how it was going to work And so, I don't know, I could be wrong on that, but that's... I can dig it. Well, that's good to know. But as you say, Superman hauls off and punches the thing right in the forehead, that little white sun-shaped spot in uh, his oversized forehead, and there's this almighty explosion, and then we cut back to Lex in the lab, and it, for all the world, looks like he's laid waste to all life, on planet Earth. Basically, the entire planet has been utterly devastated by the force of this explosion. And this, again, kind of calls back to how grounded the Bronze Age tried to be in as much as, no, there was, at least not to my knowledge, there's no life force out there that if you punch it in the head, there's going to be a, a an explosion that destroys the entire world and all life on planet Earth. But this is still a reasonable concern I think a lot of people had, even in 1972. I mean, this is the era of detente. But the Cold War, nevertheless, was still a day-to-day reality. This whole idea of mutually assured destruction, of all life on planet Earth being wiped out by a potential nuclear exchange between the United States and the and the Soviet Union. This was something, this is an outcome that I think a lot of people would have easily been able to wrap their heads around
3: we know that there are forces out there that could kill us at a moment's notice because we hide from them every other tuesday in our you know drills and so that this monster has that sort of level of power yeah i can see that i hadn't thought about that the context that essentially he's just committed a nuclear holocaust
0: pretty much and so What Len Wein has done in this Bronze Age story is he's changed the context in which this could happen, or the mechanism by which this could happen, but the outcome is still the same. Now, honestly, if you were to have um, like a full-scale nuclear exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union, I don't think it would look quite the way the devastation here looks, but whatever, something, something comics. (laughs) So— But the outcome is basically the exact same. There's nobody left alive on the view screens that Lex is seeing here. Um, It looks to him that he's single-handedly responsible for destroying the entire human race. And that kind of leads us back to sort of page one and page two of this story where Lex is now left dealing with the aftermath of – let's face it, the most egregious crime that anybody's ever committed because what we're talking about is the destruction of the entire human race but elliptically with that it's basically all life on planet Earth including one could reasonably say all plant life, all animal life, all insect life it's all done I mean if it's something that's powerful enough to destroy all human life you're probably going to wipe out most other forms of life as well And at this point – and in fact, Lex even comes right out and says it uh, or thinks it to himself on page 14. Without life, Metropolis stands naked and forlorn. It's every tower a a tombstone accusing me, accusing me. And in a weird kind of way, this is Lex – basically punishing himself and there's a little bit of a a divergence between lex's motivations here versus what we see on the cover on the cover of this issue what we're led to believe is that lex blames superman for all of this and if he actually says that in the story i'm just missing it because i don't recall a moment when lex says superman forced all of this it's his fault and i don't I mean, maybe we're supposed to assume that, but I don't remember a moment in the story itself when when Lex says that.
3: Yeah, that's the one part of the cover that's a bit um, dishonest as far as going along with the rest of the story. But it occurred to me what it is we're seeing here. Lex Luthor has made this recording, as he says in the page one or two, for someone somewhere to hear sometime and he says here I'm going away now in a spaceship of my own design leaving this dead world behind me so many times in comics and I think possibly in science fiction in general people come across dead planets or dead ships and there's a recording explaining what happened right Lex Luthor is doing that he is he's leaving behind a recording for some future science fiction character to come across the dead planet earth and know what happened. He, we're, we're seeing his story from the other end of that perspective. Which, I don't know. I think it's taking a, a very, very common trope and, and turning it on its head just a little bit. Um, but, but yeah. He feels very much guilty. He's not blaming Superman like the cover implies. But he's just going to... He's going to go now. Is this... Is Lexor still out there? Is, is his planet still out there? Can he go live there?
0: Yeah, that was actually going to be my question for you. Yeah, it is still out there. And so because of the fact that this is the Bronze Age and like uh, the credo of it, especially to begin with, is that this is not necessarily as... I, I don't want to use the word silly, but that's what everyone wants to say about the Silver Age, and so I'm kind of stuck using their vernacular here. I have to assume that is where... Lex is is headed you know but there's nothing explicit in the story about it but we're still talking about him leaving planet Earth in a spaceship of his own design and going to some other we should assume some other planet but he I I don't think he even says really you know where exactly it is that he's going to go I mean maybe he's just going to fly into the sun who the hell knows but it just kind of made me wonder you know are we supposed to assume he's going to Lexor I don't know um I'd like to think I wonder
3: so. – I almost want to if – I, if I had the writer, if I had Ledwin here to talk to you right now, I would ask him if Lexor was in his mind. But if there was some like editorial restriction that kept him from referring back to it since it was the Silver Age. I, I wonder if there were explicit instructions from DC to leave the 60s behind. And Move on and forge new ground, you know?
0: Yeah, and what everyone always talks about I know it's not the same thing But what everyone always talks about is the legion of super pets and that basically what we're supposed to assume is that they're still out there We're just not talking about them. And so That's you know anytime, you know, we come across so so weird little oddities like this What I've always assumed is that you know, yeah, that's actually what exactly what we're supposed to assume is that this is such-and-such and such You know, and so yeah, I that that's what I think, and I I think this is something that Julius Schwartz maybe relaxed over time, but at least to start with, he wanted to have something that was a little bit more, dare I say, serious. You know.
3: Well, like you said earlier, they are competing with Marvel, Marvel's different way of telling stories, for better or for worse. My opinion is for the better, but you know that could be argued has taken the Marvel reading, has taken the comics reading audiences by storm by this point. And DC by 1970 is having to do a little bit of catch up after having been the top dog for so many decades. Um, so, you know, editors are making choices and <laughs> hmm. in, in, in 1972, Facebook, everyone's ranting about how they should bring back the sixties and bring back the super pets and bring back, um, Comet and, uh, <laughs> I don't know, but yeah.
0: At the bottom of page 14, what we see is, uh, in the last panel, the worm starts to turn. And uh, the galactic golem storms uh, Lex's hideout. And so here Lex has been sitting, doing this sort of uh, retrospective for the benefit of anyone who ever finds his record of what happened to planet Earth. Before deciding, you know what, it's probably time, I just leave. And he's doing all this moping around and stuff. And really what he's doing is wasting valuable time because now the golem has only one more thing to fulfill. And that is going to be uh, consuming this, this last remaining source of food, which is Lex's own galactic cannon. And, that
3: he used to uh, to energize Superman and make him bait at the beginning of the story. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And here's the thing. There's really no reason to think that the golem was going to let Lex live at this point. Um, You know, obviously, life means absolutely nothing to the golem. And so he's just a sort of, for the moment at least, a sort of mindless force. Again, Shades of Doomsday, right? Right. And his, you know, he's going to consume this galactic cannon, and then one can assume probably kill lex Luthor, which by lex's own reckoning would mean that this is now the, the extinction of the human race is now complete and uh oh and by the way lex is going to die as well which is no bueno and so <clears throat> um it's just this is the moment again to kind of call back to frankenstein when the when the monster turns on the creator mm-hmm. and it's kind of weird that you know so much is being referenced here you know you've got Aspects of the Cold War Uh, We've already talked about Little Red Riding Hood The Frankenstein thing here is quite inescapable And Not to mention all of The the very fact that we're talking about Superman mythos here I mean, you know, can't escape that There is so much going on in this story In terms of literary and real world uh, references I mean, this is actually I hadn't realized it until, you know We were just now talking about it This is actually a really friggin' sophisticated story for its time And, um... I mean, I've always had a lot of respect for Len Wein as a writer. But holy shit, this story's awesome, you know? So... (laughs) And so you've got the golem. He's, um... You know, Lex was too slow in racing up his uh, force field. So now he's trapped inside of his own force field... With the golem. And, you know, we can pretty much assume... This would have been the end of Lex Luthor. Until page 16 rolls around when Superman... George Reeves-style crashes through the wall... Breaks through the force field and then resumes his battle with the golem.
3: Now, if this were George Reeves, he'd bust through the wall and then stand there, arms on his hips, as several people shoot at him and bullets bounce off his chest.
0: And he has that sort of faint, sort of grin on his face.
3: Right, right. And you get the little, little flashes of light around his chest. And so, so we need, we need some thugs to do that, and then we can go with our story.
0: Yeah. <laughs> for the purposes of this story, Lex Luther couldn't really have any, any thugs, and so that's fine you know I'm cool with that Superman eventually breaks through this sort of force bubble and um, if you need a sort of a visual reference for this I would almost want to compare it to that force bubble that Superman was trapped in in a Superman 3 where it it was a serious pain in the balls but Superman eventually did sort of tear his way through that force bubble and uh, I would I would almost want to compare it to that Right. And, um, anyway, so he eventually crashes through, he resumes his battle with the Galactic Golem, uh, or at least tries to keep him away from Lex long enough for Lex to blast a passing, uh, Meteor Shower with Galactic Energy, which provides the, um, Golem with all the, I guess, incentive he needs to, uh, hit the road, so to speak, and chase after the Meteor Shower, and off into outer space. And so Lex even thinks to himself, it may be centuries before the erratic orbit of that meteor swarm brings it, meaning the golem, brings it near Earth again. And so...
3: I think it's important to to make a couple of of points here. One, the golem is essentially an instinct... He's animated life. He's not a being of his own volition. He's, he acts very much on instinct, acts very much on, um, reacting to <sighs> stimulus. That's the word mm-hmm. reacting to stimulus. And so Lex Luthor earlier was, you made the comment that there was no reason Lex Luthor could have assumed he would survive. I just, you know, he saw the devastation of the world. He got so caught up in the emotion of the moment. It didn't even occur to him to worry about the fact that, Oh wait, I still got a whole big source of energy here, but the golem was of course attracted to it. And so now he's attracted to this meteor storm. He's going to go off into space. But in this story, the golem is not a being. He is an animus, you know, so it's,
0: Oh, look at you a, throwing out the big words. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
3: um, I just – I make the distinction because of the way the story is going to go in the next issue. But, yeah, I love the scene on page 16, the the horizontal panel of Superman busting through the force field because <sighs> Superman is powerful. Mm-hmm. He's always as powerful as he needs to be for the story. Mm-hmm. That's what he does doesn't mean everything's easy for him, which I think is a distinction that non-fans who might want to put down the idea of Superman um, sort of lose. It's not that Superman stories are dumb because everything's easy for Superman. No, 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 no. He gets shit done. Doesn't mean it was easy. And breaking through the force field is just... The, the art on that from Swanderson is just a really great way of reinforcing that. But yeah, they... Um, They send the golem off into space and then we get the, the reveal of what the whole world being blown up in the first place was all about. And this is my one negative really about this story is that this is just really a very pat explanation. And do you want to talk about it or should I, Uh,
0: by all means, I've been flapping my gums this whole time. I think you should have a, uh, have a turn (laughs)
3: Okay, Um, so Luthor asks, I saw, you know, everything get destroyed. How did you survive the explosion? And he's like, oh, that. It was just a little vanishing trick I pulled with the help of your golem. He knew there would be a discharge of hyperstellar energy that could decimate the earth. So he increased his own vibrations powered by the golems energy radiation Mm -hmm. to shift the entire human race to a different dimensional plane. And then once he won the battle, he planned to bring them all back, which we assume that he does between the last two panels of the story, because now everyone's back. But he he uses his own vibrations to shift the entire human race to a different planet. Correct, or a different dimensional plane, rather. And yes, and it it's visible.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, and that's the thing. I mean, look, <laughs> okay, I realize that this is supposed to take place, and you, if you, again, I mean, I'm not trying to beat this to death, but you know, we we. We've got to establish style here. What we're supposed to do with the Bronze Age is sort of regarded as a more serious, more grounded version of the Silver Age. And so I could see Superman doing this, you know, for the sake of necessity during the Silver Age. And I could truly even picture the people of Metropolis saying, or for that matter, all of mankind saying, well, if it had to be done, it had to be done. So uh, thanks, Superman. And it truly would be that easy, you know, it would be that pat. But in a more rational world in which we're supposed to believe the Bronze Age takes place. No, (laughs) Uh, first off, I don't think it would be quite this easy to do just from a logistical standpoint. And then once you do it, I don't think it would be that easily undone. And then once it is, I don't think that people are just going to go back to business as usual, you know?
3: Especially I, with all the conflagration and devastation that we saw. He says he shifts the human race to another dimensional plane. Nothing is said about the vast levels of destruction that we got at the beginning of the story. That Because Luthor, Luthor uses his I-can-see-anything-I-want-to technology that is very common in comics and Star Trek to, to – look around the world and everything's on fire. Everything's destroyed.
0: Mm -hmm. And you know what? This is one of those times when I think the, it's one of those times when I guess like the ideas behind a story are sometimes better than the execution. And I think that this is one of those times when, look, this, the bronze age exists in a, in, in, I would say maybe the prime of the DC multiverse. And so I don't understand what harm there could possibly have been in Superman off-panel directing Lex's TV monitors or whatever those things are, jerry-rigging them somehow so that they're actually seeing not Earth-1, but maybe some alternate Earth out there that was destroyed by something-something nuclear holocaust.
3: Right. You know,
0: and then saying, "Oh, well, everyone's here, Lex. In fact, that would actually tend to work rather rather well with what uh, Lex was up to on, let's see. this is page fourteen. He's actually looking out across the bay at Metropolis, which looks remarkably free of smoke. It looks like it's sort of sunset and everything. Um, I don't see any kind of unless the, maybe I'm misinterpreting these clouds as being smoke, I don't know. But it looks to me like Metropolis is in actually pretty good shape over there, so there's already in the art there's already a uh, rationale for that, and maybe Lex is just swallowed it, too swallowed up in his own grief to really connect the dots there. So maybe what you know Superman could have done is shown him just uh, uh, you know as the the golem is a uh, is sort of a window into a different part of the universe. Maybe rig Lex's uh, TV cameras so that they're actually seeing a different reality where nuclear devastation did take place and then say oh yeah well you know lex uh you may be smart i'm smarter and this is how i did it and that is no more and no less arbitrary than what we get in this story but it does have the benefit of bypassing all of that mass devastation so i don't know
3: well there's nothing in the story that contradicts that possibility so we could just pretend that it actually did happen in, 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 our, in our own headcanon. Um,
0: well, here's something else we can do. When uh, Superman moved these characters over to the Marvel Universe, he accidentally took Tony Stark back with him because at the bottom of page 18, we see Tony Stark walking around the streets of metropolis looking confused (laughs) as all hell
3: you know what what am i doing here
0: (laughs) so you know that's one way of looking at it so uh there you go
3: i do like the the last little bit as superman is flying Luthor off to jail Luthor is smiling because everything has been fixed
0: and again yeah that's an interesting little character moment isn't it
3: it is it really really is and it it's believable it's, I like it because Luthor is later established or, 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 maybe not later, but elsewhere established as not hating humanity, just hating Superman. Right. And although he doesn't really mention that in his monologuing in this issue, um, the idea that he destroyed humanity in the process of this is so far and away from anything he ever wanted to achieve. Um, killing Superman. Sure. Destroying humanity, no. Yeah. And so having everyone everyone back is, is yeah, listening to the sounds of life and laughter. I've got something to smile about.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. This is, like I said, it's one of those stories that it's supposed to be, it's more about the journey than the than the destination. And so, you know, what you've described, that's actually, to me, that's a completely valid, completely legitimate story. Uh, you know weakness that this story has and especially when you think about it it would have been so easy to fix this but at the end of the day i just didn't see where not not to say you're wrong i just maybe i'm maybe i'm the one with the problem here i'm living in denial i refuse to let that shake me you know so there you have it i don't know it's just this to me this is a fun issue and there's a there's a weird kind of way that this is a very good I would almost want to say this is a very good sort of epitome of what the Bronze Age was all about where you could get these sort of uh, serious and I would say I hate to use the word relevant because to me all fiction has some degree of relevance to the society which created it so to say
3: that, that was a buzzword of the 70s though
0: yeah so I'm again I'm I'm stuck using somebody else's vernacular here but This is nevertheless a relevant uh, sort of conflict, I guess, that, you know, I don't know if it was necessarily as big a deal by this point, this whole idea of, you know, mass nuclear devastation on the planet Earth, because, again, this is the era of Nixon, it's the era of Kissinger, it's the era of detente, and so, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union were not quite as at each other's throats as they had been. But the idea is not necessarily to tie into real world events, it's to tie into, into, I guess, real world um, awareness. You You know, the people reading this story still clearly remembered the era of hiding under desks, the era of the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that. This is still something that they were aware of, even if it's not, I mean, I would almost regard it as a story that relates to terrorism taking place in the United States. Is that really as timely now? Considering the fact that 9/11 was so long ago, well, no, but that doesn't mean that you know we've somehow forgotten about you know the lessons of 9/11, the pain and the shock of it and everything. And I would almost want to compare it, you know, to that. I, I'm tr- basically I'm just trying to find an analogy here that simply because 9/11 at this point was we're closing in on 15 years ago, that doesn't make it irrelevant to our day-to-day life. And to kind of put it in context with this story worldwide nuclear devastation may not necessarily at that moment have been a momentary to, or rather a moment to moment concern that people lived with every single day they still remember you know I hope that makes sense
3: no yeah it does and it's just it's a great theme to explore in superman for the time and it makes for a great superman story it's it's a shocking horrendous beginning that you know is full of pathos there's a, a fun Superman adventure with a suspenseful fight that you can actually believe and like get invested in, whether or not he's going to succeed. Um, aside from you know the three panels of the reveal at the end, it's kind of you know a bit laughable. I really, really liked the story. Uh, it's if this is the Bronze Age, I'm all for it.
0: Yeah, and I would I would say that yeah, it it, it really is. It's a,
3: it's a ton of fun stuff.
0: So. Now, do you have any kind of uh, any other parting shots or what have you for uh, for this story?
3: That was it. All
0: right, cool. <laughs> All right. Well, um, in that case, then uh, I I pretty much kind of said my piece about it as well. So uh, I think for right now, what I'm going to do is just uh, take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back after these messages. We are. I shouldn't even say now. We're. It's more like we're paused.
3: Guess, we so. are paused. Can do the promo now.
2: Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo.
3: What do you mean let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it.
2: Well, get on with it then.
3: Okay, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America.
2: Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we?
3: Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off?
2: No, 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 you're fine. You're good.
3: Okay. You've seen the Earth's Mightiest Heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting.
2: Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one?
3: Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it.
2: Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show.
3: Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films.
2: And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film.
3: Oh, well, yeah. And
2: don't forget Spider-Man. He's not the theme Avenger, but he's there.
3: Oh, okay. So, um... Maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe.
2: Better. And where should they go, not see, this magical podcasty goodness?
3: New episodes can be (coughs) found... Do I have to do the voice?
2: Yes, you do. Okay,
3: okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself.
2: Um, Dad, don't you think we should actually say the name of our show?
3: Oh, yeah, Avengers, Inspirations, Podcast, Listen, and Stuff.
2: Yeah, good job, Dad.
1: Thank you. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chip tune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal satellite on. Overnightscape underground at o n s u g dot com it's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions hours and hours and days and just o n s u g dot com take a look around and i bet you you'll find something
0: Okay, I'm back now, and John and I are uh, continuing our, uh, I guess our look back at uh, two Bronze Age Superman stories here. And so, actually though, before we get really too far into that, um, I probably should have discussed this in greater depth, either at the beginning of this episode, or really more appropriately perhaps at the beginning of the last episode the uh, Bronze Age Batman show that uh, John and I did where he and I talked about Batman number 227 and 234. But basically, as part of my prep for the theatrical release of Man of Steel, I... Basically, what I did... Well, I'll just read this this post that I made on Facebook. Um, It's the date of June the 13th, 2013. And I wrote, Wednesday was mostly dedicated to Man of Steel prep. The movie starts in just over 12 hours, and I'm ready. My Man of Steel uh, t-shirt has been washed and is hanging in the closet, waiting for showtime. My commemorative Man of Steel tickets are in my Superman wallet. All of my e-cig batteries, including the craptacular ones, have been charged and they're loaded into my Superman cigarette case. I've reread a ton of Silver and Bronze Age Superman slash Superboy comics, as well as Birthright and John Byrne's Man of Steel. I've watched a few episodes of the '90s animated series, the Fleischer Superman shorts, and tons of Smallville. Tasteful selections of music from various Superman films and Smallville episodes are all that I've played on my trusty iPod for several days now. I even polished what's left of my, su- of my metal Superman keyring from the Warner Brothers store. Beyond that, there isn't anything more that I can do. And some people posted sort of uh, snarky replies to that. They were a little creeped out by the level of uh, prep that I went to for A Man of Steel. Well, I'd like to think that John is helping me go to an even more absurd prep level here with these episodes. So if any of you were wondering where this is all coming from, that's where it's all coming from. Now,
3: John— I just figured you were doing all that because it was my birthday. Whenever Man has still came out, so you were just trying to get all, all Superman'd up for my birthday, which I appreciate, by the way.
0: <laughs> well, happy to help. Happy to help. The uh, issue that we're going to be talking about this time, this is Superman number 258. That's 258, not 248, because 248 is the one that we just talked about. So anyway, this is uh, Superman number 258, and uh, basically this is uh, – if if you want to compare the – story, the uh, issue that we talked about last time, you know, in the last segment to the Doomsday storyline and indeed the Doomsday character, then I suppose you could com- you-, you could more compare mm-hmm. this issue to some degree with Superman, Doomsday, Hunter, Prey, the rematch between Superman and Doomsday. So, but basically um, I'm really not sure who drew this cover because I don't know, it's just a little bit ambiguous but basically you've got the galactic golem crashing through the door of the Fortress of Solitude, which by itself is no mean feat, and he's shouting, I've smashed your invulnerable fortress, Superman. Now I'll smash you. And again, this is just one of those, you can't say clickbait, but I guess bait covers of the 1970s that uh, you know Superman comics uh, just sort of specialized in, like you were saying before. So... All in all, uh, it's pretty good cover. Do you know? Do you know who, who who drew this, or am I putting you on the spot again?
3: No, I got it. Um, actually, after a whole slew of covers by Nick Cardi alternating with Neil Adams, this is once again a Swanderson cover. Mm. So, um, but basically, ever since two forty-eight, it's been Neil Adams and and Nick Cardi taking turns doing the covers and. I don't know if it's because it's a return of the character they created for 248, but uh, Swan and Anderson are back on cover duties for this.
0: Good. I, you know what? I'm, I've always been of the opinion. I understand the marketing that was behind having Neil Adams pencil all of those Superman covers and all the other covers and stuff that he did. I understand that. But I've always kind of felt that m- – I don't want to use the word Disrespectful. But maybe not fully appreciative of the artist that was doing the art inside the the proper issue, you know? So I'm always happy to see a Neil Adams, Murphy – sorry, a Kurt Swan, Murphy Anderson cover on a a comic that was drawn by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson as opposed to a Neil Adams cover. But on the other hand, though, it's Neil Adams, and he's drawing Superman, so shut the fuck up, so – (laughs)
3: No, but I still feel that way. If the if the art style on the cover is not um, indicative of the art style on the inside, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: even with modern comics, I feel like that's especially if um, the artist on the cover is a big name. And it's it's toted and, and, and advertised a lot. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's disingenuous because you're selling one thing on the outside and have another thing on the inside. And what's on the inside may or may not be to my taste. It all depends on what it is. Right. But but it's not what I was buying, you know?
0: Yes. I, I agree. And I even I even relate. So I don't know. It's just it's interesting. So the issue kicks off and this is—it it starts on a very ominous note because let's face it—you know—it's not exactly a secret who the villain of the piece is. So we can just say that yes, it is in fact the Galactic Golem. What sets this apart, like literally from the get-go, what sets this apart from his last appearance is the—the uh, the story kicks off with what looks to be a hobo or maybe a homeless man or something. His occupation isn't really clearly identified. He's basically uh, cooking what looks to be his dinner over a campfire uh, outside of Metropolis. And he looks over and sees some sort of crashing something or other in the field next to him. So like any idiot in the DC universe, he goes out there to check it out. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but if I lived in the DC universe where, uh, I don't know, you've got different strains and colors of kryptonite crashing every couple of days – Uh, You never know when the next alien invasion is going to start or the next worldwide plague or or, or what have you. The last thing I would ever do is go out into the middle of an empty field to investigate a crashed something or other (laughs) without any kind of protection at all. You know, I'm sorry. I I wouldn't do that. But, you know, whatever. Something, something.
3: And it's a good lesson because it's not like this guy survives this thing.
0: And there is my point. This is the first – Actual murder, we see the golem commit. Um, he tried, certainly, to kill Superman in the last issue. Obviously, that wasn't successful. I get the impression he would have killed Lex if he could have gotten away with it, but Superman got in the way. This is his first, I guess, conscious act of murder, you know? Superman was his target, so there's that's, I guess, to be expected. Lex, in the last issue, always got the idea that he would have been collateral damage. He wasn't necessarily the golem's target. He was just there. And so, but he wasn't really, like I say, he wasn't a uh, deliberate target on the golem's part here. The golem willfully kills this guy. And that is, when you think about it, that does kind of set a different sort of agenda for the golem in this story. Literally from page one and then going right on through to the end of the issue. And
3: And I want to, I want to agree with you, but for a different reason. Go for it. The Golem we got in the previous issue, like like I said, was, was just was an animated you know life thing that was just consuming energy. And I feel like if it had taken any human lives, it would have been based on lowest levels of animal instinct. I wouldn't even have considered if if Superman had died, Lex Luthor had died, Bernie Schwartz had died. I wouldn't have considered that murder in the previous story, but the golem is very different in this story. And I do consider his killing of this man in the first page, a murder because of the nature of the character in this story. He has killed this guy and taken his clothes, and he has a purpose, and he's killed a man to fulfill his purpose. So, so yeah, um, I'm so glad though that he didn't kill the puppy.
0: Yeah, he actually uh, makes a moment, uh, takes a moment to uh, actually pet the puppy, and
3: everybody loves the puppy.
0: Well, unless you just you don't have a fucking soul, <laughs> Michael Vick. I'm looking pretty much right at you.
3: My wife's allergic, so that sort of steals part of her soul away.
0: Oh, oh, poor thing. Okay, that sucks. Jeez.
3: <laughs> well, she—it's one of those things where if you—if you grow up making yourself sneeze every time you're around an animal, then you sort of lose all affection for those animals. So, um, she's not—she's not, she's not a, a dog or a cat lover, but it's because she can't—she can't be around them. I—I um, I found Luthor's comment at the end of last issue about centuries before he ever comes back a little uh, ironic in light of this issue, because so much for centuries, this guy's back.
0: Yeah, and uh, without skipping too far ahead in the story, there's actually a very lo- – well, in the context of a comic book, there's a very logical reason why that happened. and so Yeah,
3: it works really well.
0: Indeed it does. But before we get to that, what we see is uh, – we see the, the galactic golem wandering the uh, streets of uh, downtown Metropolis, and he stops outside of, a, uh, of an electronics store. Doing a demo of TVs, and of course they're playing Clark Kent's news broadcast from WGBS, and uh, where police, and I, I, what I think we're supposed to assume is that it's probably taken the Golem a couple of hours to to walk into downtown Metropolis, because by the time he gets to the electronics store, police have already to, they've already found uh, the body of um, the man that the Golem has just killed on the previous page, and so, um. What happens from there is that he gets attacked by this trio of young hoodlums that, uh, for some reason, Metropolis always has in great abundance. And it's like he's aware on on only the most basic, casual level of a threat. He doesn't even really turn to face his attackers, though. He just reaches over his shoulder, bitch slaps all three of them, sends them flying. And again, less than um, than the homeless dude. These guys kind of have more ambiguous fates in that we don't really know if they survived this encounter uh, this encounter or if basically this was lights out permanently mm-hmm. you know so I don't know I mean we see him laying in the street so it could I don't know it could go either way but I off the top of my head I don't actually remember if anything is actually said about you know their long-term health and all of that. I don't know.
3: <clears throat> I, I don't think it is. I I do, you know, this is at the Bronze Age Superman and Clark Kent's on TV. And I was trying to think, you know, since the Bronze Age, TV news reporting and subsequently internet news reporting and subsequently internet um, quote-unquote news reporting has really taken the place of newspapers on basically every level yes and yet we don't see clark kent reporting on tv to nearly the extent that we saw in the 1970s no
0: no we don't
3: and and yet that would make so much sense and i remember whenever the current dc continuity got started they made a big deal about the fact that it was tv reporting and and WGBS was going to be expanding you know, buying the Daily Planet and everything else and expanding their way of doing news and yet we don't see Clark on TV, even in modern comics. We see him blogging, which I guess is is, is a modern way of doing news, but um, I was just kind of surprised in retrospect that this is a very 1970s trope of Superman is having Clark reporting on the news.
0: But somehow it's more It's more, dare I say, relevant and modern then, or rather now than it would have been then, but somehow it's then and not now, so yeah.
3: Exactly, there's a weird weird discontinuity there.
0: Yeah, and the thing that's always sort of blown my hair back about that whole thing is when people say that people would recognize Clark Kent as being Superman, and I guess my logical answer to that has always been Clark Kent has spent years up to this point hanging out with the most, arguably the most intelligent, detail-oriented, observant people in the world. If they can't see through his Clark Kent disguise, why would Joe Schmuck on the street, who's never met Clark or Superman, see through the disguise either? And so, I don't know. I mean, this is one of those things—shit. I mean, there is so friggin' much uh, potential— to having Clark as a TV news anchor. And I think the uh, Bronze Age, they only really scratched the surface of it. I've always felt like, you know, this is just rife with possibility. And I don't know, it's, this is something I would love to see come back. I mean, end of the day, you know, the Daily Planet, I like the idea of a great metropolitan newspaper, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. That's just not the world that we live in anymore. It's, it's not. And it feels like, there's this entire contingent of fans. Understandably, they're attached to the idea of Clark Kent newspaper reporter. Guys, it's got to stop at some point. I mean, At some point. Look, just to tell you how serious a situation this is, the publisher of the New York Times, I, I, I read a quote from him. It was actually very recently. And we're talking about the friggin' New York Times. I mean, this is one of, this is probably the most popular successful newspapers in America. I mean, this is that one's got to be top dog, right? One would
3: it's think. Like, when you think newspaper, it's like the quintessential concept of newspaper, the New York Times.
0: Precisely that. And he's saying he's using very conditional language, you know, well, if we're still publishing uh, a print newspaper in a year or something and and things like that and I get the idea that literally the only thing that's keeping print news like this whole idea of like newspapers alive I truly do believe it's the New York Times. The minute they decide to call it a day, or they have only blogs, or they have just a website, or whatever it is their new format's going to be, the minute they get that worked out, even if it's just a a, a um, like a, an iPad app or something like that, the rest of them are going to fall like dominoes. Mark my mm-hmm. words. I mean, uh, you know, w- when the New York fucking Times calls it a day. Wait for all the other newspapers to, to fold as well. That's what's going to happen, guys. And so really, it's tradition and nothing else. It's keeping newspaper as a, newspapers as a medium alive. And I'm not overly fond of that myself because of the fact that, in my experience, most blogs, they tend to be – if you want to put them in some kind of a journalistic context, they're more like features – and you can't have an entire newspaper made up of features. You need to have actual journalist journalistic stories. And right. that is not that has never been what blogs have specialized in. So I don't regard blogs as being a worthy substitute. They never have been. In my opinion, they never will be. And but at the same time, <clears throat> something's gotta give. And let's face it, broadcast news it is kind of similar in terms of the rules of journalism and, you know, the way that it functions, to me, it's the more logical replacement for newspapers in this modern era in which we live until such time as, I don't know, uh, bloggers get their shit together and actually start writing actual news stories. like
3: With, 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 with fucking proper English and spelling and punctuation. Oh my – okay, I, I know this is my thing. I'm like grammar police and uh, I'm, a, I'm a linguist, so – Dude, you're, you're,
0: thing, right now you're podcasting with an English teacher's son. So, by all means, say whatever you want to say.
3: <laughs> the, you go to news sites and they're using the wrong homonyms. They're misspelling words. They're mispunctuating their sentences. And it's like, who's your editor? Who's catching this? Nobody. I mean, Lois, Lois Lane can't spell words in 1979, and that's a really important mistake. But now, people just put whatever they want on the internet. And as long as they're the first one to have this the story up, then it's considered okay. I just I don't know. It really, really bothers me that quote unquote, journalism online can't take the time to edit itself. Well, yeah.
0: And the thing is, I mean, on the one hand, there I really do like, you know, it's called, this is, look. This is not my word. This is just the term that gets thrown around. So again, I have to use other people's vernacular here. But it's called citizen journalism, right? And I actually do kind of like that. Those you can find like sort of these photo essays of people who will go to like major news stories. And I, I think the like the best examples are very are, are they're always going to be like these very visual types of stories, like a um, an anti-war protest or I don't know, like um, a tea party rally or, or something like that. You know, basically something where people, their message is being conveyed visually, and you have people who are just snapping pictures of what's happening at this event, this rally, this this um, I don't know. It's like maybe it's a presidential campaign something or other fundraiser, just fucking whatever it is, right? And you can get so friggin' much truth. From all this, because what you find is that sometimes what is occurring at this event is not what's being shown on TV, and sometimes those two things are very fucking different from one another. And so those those citizen journalism sites can actually be kind of a backstop against court. Let's let's just fucking let's just call it what it is: fucking corporate media, right? That protects, um, I don't know, uh, Viacom's bottom line or news corporations, bottom line, or or whoever, you know, just insert just giant fucking corporation here, rather than serving their agenda, these, these citizen journalism sites and these photo essays that show what is really happening at these events. And it's a, to me, that's a very powerful way of keeping those institutions honest. It's kind of funny that, you know, they're speaking truth to the people who should be speaking truth. So it's, I don't know. Anyway, I'm not trying to turn this into a rant. But that's kind of obvious. That's a little bit of a sensitive issue for me.
3: Yeah. No. No. I get it. Um, but yeah. So Clark's on TV, <laughs> and <laughs> just you know, bring it back around. Yeah. Um, he signs off with "Good night and good day." Yeah. I. Does that sound weird to you? Because that sounds weird to me.
0: It does, and. This was an era when, to be a a a a sort of broadcast news anchor, you needed to have a little bit of a shtick, you know, or a catchphrase or something like that, you know. And I would I would almost want to compare it to uh, uh, Walter Cronkite. You know, he always had those big, thick, horn-rimmed glasses, and that was sort of his thing. And it it just, among other things, I mean, apart from like the tone and timbre of Cronkite's voice, what I think of is those just ginormous fucking glasses the dude was always wearing. I mean, or Ted Koppel with his that I don't even know what what the fuck you call that that hairstyle that um it was like the George Lucas like poofy hair that he had going. Um, and so there was, and or here's another one like um in local news here in Houston for a long time there was a there was a local news anchor who had. His shtick—he would go, he he would do these sort of uh, health reports from various restaurants, suppo- uh, selected supposedly at random, and he would basically check out their can kin- uh, their kitchens and their utensils and how clean are they, and his shtick was when he found it, he would say, "And there was slime in the ice machine," and that kind of became Marvin Zindler's kind of his calling card, you know, and. Um, I don't, and, and so I guess where I'm going with all of this is to say that good night and good day, it could be the sort of nonsense, bullshit calling card that some producer thought it would be an interesting, I don't know, greeting or catchphrase for Clark Kent to use for his news broadcast. So I don't know.
3: I like the, uh, the sign off wars that they had on Anchorman. Did you see that movie?
0: Only parts of it.
3: Okay. So, um, Will Ferrell's character and the the pretty blonde character are basically trying to dick measure each other out <laughs> of top, you know, news anchor, and they basically they have their own different sign offs, and so they keep on repeating their sign offs, like trying to get the last word on the broadcast. It's it's pretty funny, but um, okay, so Star Labs. Now again, I don't have a lot of experience with Bronze Age Superman, and. It's possible that I've seen a Bronze Age story with Star Labs in it before, but I think this is the first. And I've only seen Star Labs before in the context of post-crisis DC. I didn't even realize it was a pre-existent idea. Yes. So it's kind of cool for me to see Star Labs here.
0: Yes, it is. And uh, since we're on page five, that leads into something that we just we just cannot ignore.
3: Clark. The name of the guy.
0: Yeah, Clark, uh, when he rolls up to what's left of the star, uh, star Labs branch laboratory, he interviews two people who were attacked by the galactic golem. And, uh, you know, we get elaboration on that a little bit later on. But at least for right now, Clark speaks to the astrotechnicians Burt Smith and Harry Potter. <laughs> spells i might say the exact same way and i gotta tell you this has always kind of taken me right out of the story and here's the thing it would be one thing if you know this was a i don't know maybe a heavyset middle-aged black dude if that's who harry potter was but no harry potter is a a, a relatively diminutive balding middle-aged bespectacled Scientist, and I can't help but think, you know what? What if Harry someday decided to travel back through time, ended up in the DC universe, and got a job at Star Labs? And so, if you want this to be a crossover with uh, the Harry Potter universe, well, I, I guess it can be.
3: So, this is a—it's a multiverse thing. This is just Harry Potter on another Earth. <laughs> this, this is the life he led whenever he. This is the Harry Potter who didn't get the envelope. And eventually his magic powers just kind of faded away, and he grew up as a, as a worthless know-nothing underneath the stairs of his uncle and aunt's house. And so he goes to, to putter about in a laboratory as an adult. And yeah. <laughs> it's just so weird. You know? <laughs> yeah. How are you on, um, on Bronze Age Hulk? Have you read much?
0: I've read precisely none.
3: Okay, so there's a supporting character for I don't know exactly how long, because I know he eventually dies, but his name is Jim Wilson. And he is, he's he's a young black guy <laughs> with an afro who has my brother's name. <laughs> and I, I was reading a Hulk issue recently because I don't know, somebody was in it that I was following. And I came across the character and I snapped a photo and said hey, and I sent it to my brother and said, Hey, you were in the Hulk in the 70s. He's like, sweet, I'm black and have an Afro. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> I love it. This is great. From from there, uh, we get a little bit of, of exposition, I suppose, on what exactly it was that happened. Uh, basically, moments after uh, bitch-slapping those three uh, hooligans in the street, um, the galactic golem crashed through the Star Labs uh, branch that was next door to the electronics shop. Crash through the wall, stole this red glowing rock while uh, uh, Bert and Harry try to chase him off and they beat him with a broom handle, but that accomplishes exactly nothing. And uh, then from there, uh, the galactic golem makes his escape. And so what the hell is this all about? And so unfortunately, there really are no no easy and obvious answers to that. And it should be noted that at this point it's not necessarily confirmed to Clark that this is in fact the Galactic Golem. I mean the reader knows that. Clark doesn't know that for sure yet.
3: Yeah, because the Golem is wearing an overcoat and a hat. So nobody knows anything about what this guy is. He's just an intruder who's who's doing bad stuff. There's – it could be anyone. Absolutely anybody.
0: True, yes. And anyway, it's just – that's an important little nuance to the story because if you know for a fact – like if you're a superhero and you know for a fact who it is you're about to throw down with, that has got to affect your planning you know, and the way that you do things. So basically what I'm trying to say is that the fact that Clark kind of rushes into battle here not knowing completely who he's about to um, uh, go toe-to-toe with – it's not as reckless as it, as it might seem. And so anyway, so he piles into uh, his news van, uses the little uh, trap door on the floor of the news van, flies through the uh, Metropolis sewer system.
3: I thought that was a neat little bit of planning ahead because you got to figure whenever he parked the van there to begin with, he thought, I will just park right over here on top of this manhole cover just in case I have to get out of here in a quick
0: yeah, and I'm actually starting to think that you know by this point in the guy's career, he, he does little things like that to, I, I guess, enable himself if he needs it in case of an emergency. And the last time that we saw the uh, Metropolis sewer system was back in Superman number 246, which I talked about in episode number 56 of this show. So if you want to find out how exactly the sewers got cleaned up, That issue, well, go back and listen to my episode and read that issue.
3: I forgot you had covered that particular issue. I'm sure I've heard the episode, I just forgot that it was that one. I like, well, two things about that. One, he says 246 December 1971, and this is 258 from November of 1972. So it's been a year of comics. You would think, A, Sewers. You can't clean them. They're going to get dirty again. And B, it's been a year of comics, so surely they're dirty again by now. But, um, but yeah, I did like that there is a feeling of continuity. It's not that continuity is a rare thing in this era of DC. It's not at all. But it is neat whenever they just take this little bitty moment to say, by the way, this story is related to other things you've read. And we're going to acknowledge that here
0: yeah and that works for me it's uh, stories like this i would i the way i've always looked at it is you can't really enjoy final crisis or let me rephrase that because I, I think that's actually very true you can't enjoy final crisis, but i don't think you can <laughs> i don't think you can appreciate the fullness of infinite crisis if you don't have a pretty decent knowledge of the minutiae of continuity in the DC universe at that time. Here we're getting a story where a knowledge of what's gone on in previous issues is going to enhance your enjoyment of this one. End of the day though, it's not an absolute and you can enjoy this story on its own merits or not enjoy it on its own merits. And it's basically just a way of, I guess, adding texture to a story, but it, it, it's not, this This story does not rise and fall on continuity. And I kind of feel like comics have kind of done themselves a disservice in making everything so tied in with everything else that you can't, I mean, I think some of, some of Marvel's big event stories from the 2000s, some of them you can appreciate as sort of just standalone events like Civil War. I think that, If you just like comics and if you like Marvel characters, odds are you can read that story and you don't need to know tons and tons and tons about the Marvel Universe. And the reason I say that is because when I read it, I didn't know tons and tons and tons about the Marvel Universe, but I was still able to get into the story anyway. They told me what I needed to know in that story in order to enjoy or not enjoy the issue at hand. But then you get into other stories. Like I say, I mean, the best example I can think of is Infinite Crisis, where Because of the fact that continuity was so affected by that, the story itself had to rely so much on continuity. And I just – I don't know. I mean I don't know if that's always the most effective way to tell a story.
3: So anyway. And you have a neat hybrid between the two with Secret Invasion, which – you do not need to have read all the issues that built up to it to get the story because it's alien invasion. They've infiltrated. they have taking the place of heroes. Here's a story. Yes. But if you had been reading and seen it coming and seen the build up, it's like a huge payoff. Yeah. Which I which I think is kind of like the um, the death funeral and rain trilogy.
1: Mm.
3: You don't need to have read. 75 issues of superman leading up to that point no but if you have done it's a really neat payoff yeah a lot of things
0: yeah i agree with that and that to me is really the better way to tell stories and i always kind of i don't know if it was necessarily intended to be this way but i can't help thinking of the sort of media circus that the that the doomsday funeral for a friend and reign of the superman sort of trilogy what that sort of turned into it in a weird kind of way it really was a a little bit of a love letter to the people that had stuck by superman all those years and yeah you know the straights and the civilians they had they had i guess some sort of entree into into the story by way of superman himself a sort of universal icon even you know even then he was a universal icon but there was a fullness to the story there's a texture to it that if you don't know, if you didn't already know who Hank Henshaw was, the shocking reveal is more of a "what the huh?" instead of being a "holy shit" punch in the gut type of uh, type of sensation that I think Dan Jurgens was going for. So, right. anyway, both of those approaches work. It's just, I don't know. It, it, that's that to me is is how that's comic book storytelling really at its finest, if you ask me. So. From there, we get the sort of glory shot of Superman bursting out of a manhole, and uh, which sounds somehow worse than it actually is. Um, and then he's uh, taking to the skies before zipping right back down to the streets and following these glowing footsteps back to the Galactic Golem. And this is, to me, this is the sort of this is the Superman Doomsday Hunter prey moment of the story where. You, you get this rematch that um, number one explains not so much the golem's origins because that much we actually got but we do get this moment where if any of this sounds familiar just let, let me know the golem gets brought on board a spaceship and uh, before he's wrecked shop on the whole thing presumably kills everybody on there makes his escape and then goes off to you know tear the shit out of everything and then he ends up back on earth and I mean it's again it's not this is not a a, Hunter Prey is not a shot-for-shot remake uh, of this by any stretch but at the same time I can't overlook the similarities either you know Um, I mean where are you coming from with all of this I mean
3: I'm actually feeling like I want it to be an intentional similarity I want to think that the writers of Hunter Prey had this story in mind, and we're doing like not necessarily an update of the story, but taking those same kinds of ideas of a story that perhaps they had enjoyed when they were younger, and doing something like that with a new character. um It's they're so similar that I want them to have meant to be similar, if yeah. that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I'm, and I'm right there with you. And the thing is, um, this may seem like heresy to some. I'm not a real big hunter prey guy I mean I love 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 the art and in, in hunter prey but the story has always kind of left me a little cold you know the first issue is good the second one I don't know whatever and then the third one it just feels a little anticlimactic somehow and it's just I'm not trying to insult Dan Jurgens because it's really not my business to insult Dan Jurgens on pretty much anything but I just can't help thinking that that story is not what it could have been. I mean, I feel like a fourth issue really would have done Hunter Prey a lot of good. Woulda, have, shoulda, have, coulda. Have. But it's it, that's just where I'm coming from with it. So, but this is nevertheless useful exposition, and it does account for Lex's statement at the end of um, at the end of the last issue, where he says, "And it could be centuries before the golem comes back." Well, it's actually less than a year before the golem comes back but there's a very very logical reason why he's back so soon and it 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 plays is what i'm saying so um
3: i wish they had done something in the uh in the you know filling in the gap background story to explain how and why this creature gets a mind uh, now, maybe we could uh, just no-prize it and say that bathing it in numerous kinds of energy is what did it. In fact, that probably is, is a pretty decent explanation in and of itself. I just wish somebody had said something, because where we used to have an animated creature acting on instinct, responding to stimulus with Lex Luthor's voice coming out of it, here we have a creature who is talking and, and screaming all on his own out to kill Superman.
0: Well, another way of looking at it is that in the in the last issue, he may have been in terms of I guess his cognitive development, he was a toddler, he was an infant. Here he's a teenager. And I don't know that's that's certainly one way of looking at it, but there is a there is a moment here that I sort of had to wonder what exactly we of course now i can't find the exact the exact quote but it, it at some point what the uh, what the golem actually says is mine is the power cosmic i mean i'm sorry mine is the power of the cosmos mm-hmm. and it did kind of make me wonder is that supposed to be a little bit of a riff on the silver surfer there <laughs> because it's a little uh, the line is a little too too similar you know it, yeah, here it is. It's on, uh, the bottom of page seven. It says, uh, yours is the power of Earth's yellow sun, but mine is the power of the cosmos. You know? And it's a little too similar to mine is the power cosmic that I just kind of wondered about that.
3: Yeah, I don't know. The the guy's power source and power set is so vaguely defined, but, you know, he's the galactic golem, so he has the powers of the galaxy, whatever, whatever that is.
4: Okay.
0: just want to ask, um, so from there, uh, superman and the golem they have a sort of a brief little t- in fact it's not even really much of a much of a battle it's uh, basically just a uh, uh, the golem tearing up the street for a little bit superman's got to fix it then he retreats to the fortress of solitude um where of all things he's actually got luther's galactic cannon stashed there and this is one of those moments it, it look they don't make a big production out of it but this is one of those moments in the story that works for me on so fucking many levels because this was a time this look this was a different i guess period in superman's uh mythos right the fortress of solitude wasn't this sort of kryptonian mausoleum haunted by the artificial intelligence construct of jor-el this was something that uh, superman had consciously made for himself And as much as anything, it's a storehouse for technology that's just too fucking dangerous for anybody else to have access to. So how is that not going to include Lex Luthor's galactic cannon? Superman's got to do something with it. I don't know if you necessarily want to take the risk of dismantling something like that, at least not until you have a better idea of what it is and how it works. And so he's basically stashed it in the Fortress of Solitude until he can figure out what his next step is. That plays for me. Like, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that having it there, it, would have been even cool to see just like in other stories, kind of like the, uh, the penny or whatever for, for Batman's Batcave, just as a nod back to something from a previous story. So much of what we see in Superman's fortress is often made up for the plot at hand. And, and this is no exception to that. This is, something from another story that we need for this one, so it's going to be there. But it is very cool to see. I like seeing it. I also like the fact that this guy just like busts into the fortress like nobody's business. Um, Because I remember through my Silver Rage reading that the fortress is essentially impregnable. There is no busting into the fortress. I think I've actually read a story where that happens for the very first time, and Superman's kind of gobsmacked that somebody was able to bust through the door. Uh, But now he's just like those things are so expensive to replace <laughs>
0: yeah yeah it uh it's not exactly a normal everyday occurrence but yeah I, that that worked for me as well so from there it, it it's kind of funny that throughout this entire thing the nature of superman's battle with the golem it's just it's just different than their little showdown from the last issue that we uh, that we covered in the last segment. Superman's a little bit more in control of the situation. Last time he was caught pretty much completely off guard by what was going on. Here he's a little bit more on top of things. He's he's devising plans. He knows first of all his first order of business has got to be moving the the uh, Golem away from Metropolis. And there's obviously uh, a little bit of a logistical issue going on there that well, it's the if if luther's whatchamacallit um galactic Cannon is located at the fortress of solitude then i must go to the fortress of solitude so there is that to think about but this is still a just a different type of conflict that's uh, going on here between uh, superman and the and the golem
3: and just a, a minor note that i had on the conflict is that at one point the golem picks up superman's key yeah, He picks up the key and basically whacks Superman with it. And I feel like there's a little bit of a problem of scale here. Because that key is supposed to be really, really massively huge. Yeah, it doesn't supposed feel to... as, as... Be visible from the air, right?
0: Yes, I was about to say, yeah, it's supposed to serve as a sort of airplane marker.
3: So I feel like we have a little bit of a, of a Transformers scale problem issue here, where, where the size of the thing is just not quite what it should be. Um, but, but yeah, it is a good fight. And... I was actually trying to figure out how and why we even went from Metropolis to the fortress, like what happened to the guy. And he says that the triumph would not be as satisfying. So this golem is actually wanting like a big revenge fest on Superman. And is he just still motivated to kill Superman because he was sent to kill Superman in the first story? Do we get any more motivation from him in this one?
0: Not really. Um, Basically, what we're left with is um, him, I I guess, following his original programming.
3: Okay. Which really was only there because Lex Luthor blasted Superman with that energy and turned him into a delicious candy for the creature. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, it's it's a little bit unclear in that sense, but it's still a fun story.
0: Indeed. And this sort of relates to a point that you were making in the last segment that superman's as powerful as he needs to be in any given story and actually i very much agree with that that's a that's a really good point the other thing to think about though is that you know people are uh, you know as you said before you know the common gripe that a lot of people have i guess people with basically no imagination the gripe that they tend to have against Superman is that he's this all-powerful, He there's really nothing out there that, that can challenge him, and he can just punch his way out of any problem he faces. And the resolution to this story is not Superman punching his way uh, out of the problem. He thinks his way out of it. And mm-hmm. basically he covers the, the uh, galactic golem with this weird fucked up mixture of iron and nickel, which are very highly attracted by magnetism, at the very moment that the golem is standing directly over Earth's north magnetic pole, and what this in effect does is renders the golem completely immobile. There is, I mean, at this point he's got, in order to rise back up, he would have to be physically more powerful than an entire planet, and he's just not. Nothing is, or few things are. And that is such a creative and yet permanent way of dealing with this threat, shutting it down for good. And it doesn't involve, uh, you know, all sorts of mass devastation and all these other things. It's a very intelligent way of handling a problem, I think. And um, it's, every now and then, You know, you get these little bits of science and comics that remind you that, yes, these people are educated. (laughs) But it's not done in a way, in a sort of Grant Morrison way that would... That's kind of, I think, sometimes designed to remind us of just how smart Grant Morrison is. This is just this one little scientific factoid that, you know what, if something like this were to happen directly over Earth's magnetic pole, the object or the person to whom this happens is basically rendered inert. And it's one of those things I think most people may have an intellectual awareness of how many people are really going to think to put something like that into action though, you know? Right. It's just something, it's just an extraordinarily creative way. And especially given that Superman is so powerful on some level, there's a lot of satisfaction of seeing Superman kick the snot out of uh, somebody who can punch on his level. That's not the resolution to the story. And that, Number one, it's unexpected. Number two, it's so well done. You know, I just I eat this up with a spoon. I love it. Love it. Love it.
3: I also found it a bit dark because whereas in the in the previous story, you know, they, they had to be clever there, too. So they found a clever way to trick the creature off the planet. And, it, you know, they gave him some food to eat and uh, basically a, a car to chase mm-hmm. into space. Here, the creature is still alive, a lot more self-aware than he was in the previous story, Mm -hmm. and yet now he is trapped in an immobile metal prison where he cannot move, he cannot eat, and for all intents and purposes is going to starve to death. Or if he doesn't starve to death because he's an animated golem, he's going to just exist forever. And that's really, really dark. And Superman just like dusts off his hands and done with that, walks away. And I'm not saying I don't like it because I do think it's a pretty, pretty clever way to finish the story. But I think it's just something that if you really think about what's really going on here is a bit more than you'd expect Superman to do. And there is a story that was published um relatively recently, 2012, mm-hmm. uh Superman number seven and eight, he went up against Hellspont. Mm-hmm. Like the old Wild Storm Hellspont character, Superman versus Hellspont. Right. And Hellspont, like the Galactic Golem, is totally on Superman's level to have a big old dust up with. And at one point during the fight, they're off in an isolated area in the mountains of some, I don't know, snowy place. And during the course of their fight, basically a mountain falls on Hellspont. Oh boy. And Superman's like, okay, well, that's over with. And he flies away. And the story got some flack. The story got some flack because Superman had basically killed Hellspont. Didn't really kill him, but was satisfied with the possibility that he just killed Hellspont and he's just going to go fly away and have some Denny's. But that's not how has, Superman would roll. It's it's not how Superman would roll, but it, it's pretty similar to how he rolls here. Yeah.
0: Um. Except for the whole starvation angle. What I took from this is that... Eh, shit, who wrote this? This Was this Len Wein again, or who was this? Uh, but, yeah, Len Wein. I get the idea that the easy and maybe most convenient sort of solution for this would have been, especially since they're, they're already in the Fortress of Solitude to begin with, zapping the golem to the Phantom Zone. Now, I get the idea that that, maybe somebody at some point like considered that, because you know the plot naturally does go to the Fortress of Solitude to take advantage of technology, and I can't help thinking that, at least at one point, this is just speculation on my part, but at some point somebody would have at least suggested that and then for what obviously for whatever reason it just it didn't happen and but except for the starvation angle i mean i kind of consider this to be it's in effect sending him to the phantom zone because he's not he, he's basically meeting the same type of fate here that he would there except for the whole possible starvation angle you know and
3: but just a, just a continued existence without any meaning or purpose to it.
0: Exactly that. And even here, I mean, what we could – if you wanted to, what you could figure is that Superman will, I don't know, like once a week or something like that, fly up to the fortress, fire up uh, you know, the Luther cannon, zap the golem with it so he's getting some form of nourishment. He's simply unable to move, you know, and that, I mean, that's not exactly the most humane way of dealing with this particular threat on the one hand. But on the other hand, you know, I'm a big believer in the fact that, you know, different people can expect to receive different different justice in life. And for somebody like the golem who never really asked to be born or created in the first place, who's really just. Following his primary direct, I mean, I, there's a degree to which, yeah, he is Frankenstein. He is kind of the victim in all of this. He's not destroyed, though. And I hate to say it, you know, he is nevertheless a murderer. This is maybe the best justice he could hope for, you know? And it's not ideal, but this is a, a, a situation that Superman d- didn't create. And unless you're going to send his ass to the Phantom Zone, which I don't see that as being a radically different solution you're right. this is as good as anything I don't know I mean I don't know
3: No, it. it I, I like the I like the comparison to the Phantom Zone because that is also you have I mean if you really think about the Phantom Zone and you think about that existence what kind of existence is that that you're really giving people and, and you you see some of that treatment of the idea in Man of Steel whenever Zod's like you won't basically have the balls to kill us yourselves you'd rather just condemn us to a lo- to it to an existence of non-existence i don't remember exactly what he says but he he has some pretty justified ranting in in the scene of man of steel where he's trapped in the the big cgi dildos <laughs> um so this existence that he has condemned the golem to is 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 significantly less than awesome but it's a prison and like any other prison it's not meant to be great
0: right and the other thing is the way that it's presented in the pre-crisis era i've always thought that the phantom zone is probably the cruelest thing that anybody has ever envisioned you know because the way that it's done in uh, for example supergirl and i would thus assume the entire Christopher Reeve film canon you could kind of think of it as being a sort of parallel dimension or or an alternate dimension and same type of thing with Smallville the show Smallville you know where it's uh, this very barren desert type of environment and it's it's hard it's rough and and all of that it's just not like the pre-crisis comic version, though, where you are a literal wraith. And if you think about what sensory deprivation can do to people, I mean, you've got your sight and you've got your, your sense of sight and you have your sense of hearing. That's it. You, you can't really touch anything. You can't really taste anything. I mean, uh, I'm sorry. That would drive you insane. Um, mm-hmm. You know that level, and I don't care, you know, Kryptonian or not, we're all sentient, and your mind is not—it's not really intended to miss out on the sense of taste, the sense of touch, all you know, all of the uh, all you know, all of the senses. It's not supposed to subsist on just those two. You know, your intellect, your consciousness is supposed to be nourished by all five, and here they're getting only two of them they can't smell anything they can't taste anything they can't touch anything i'm convinced over a sufficiently long period and we're talking centuries since you're effectively immortal in the phantom zone that would drive you fucking nuts and to me that is the far crueler sentencing
3: which i think goes back to the very first original treatment of the phantom zone do you remember that first story how superboy finds the phantom zone projector
0: yeah it's uh, he finds zod and everything
3: The Phantom Zone projector is in a box of forbidden weapons. The original treatment of the Phantom Zone in the very first story, it was created and it was used. And then it was deemed too cruel for continued use. And so it was put in a box of forbidden weapons that was either ejected into space or got ejected into space whenever Krypton blew up. Now, that's ignored later because it became like the standard Kryptonian Um, alternative to the death penalty yeah but in its original idea the phantom zone is awful and evil and they didn't want to use it anymore so um yeah it's pretty terrible also it's really fucking creepy that all of these guys are just floating around looking at anything they want to yeah i mean the whole thing it was I don't know if any comic ever did this. Certainly not in the Silver Age, but any more modern comic ever did this. Dude, fucking Jaxer and Zod can totally creep around showers and all sorts of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's just, it's really, really weird. It's one of those weird things about the Silver Age that if you really thought of the implications, there's a lot of a lot of twisted, perverted stuff that can be done with this.
0: I agree. And like and, and the thing of it is. What I'd like to think is that in the Silver Age, and as you say, in the original treatment of the Phantom Zone, there was some dipshit who maybe decided, you know what, this is a good alternative to the death penalty until somebody decided, you know what, this is the cruelest thing that we could possibly do to anybody. No, there, uh, I guess under this rubric, the death penalty is actually the, the more merciful act and i actually kind of like the idea of krypton being that that just that much more evolved that that plays for me you know and but you know and 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 i and kind of tie it all back i don't i mean i kind of view this as being what uh, an alternative to what the phantom zone by this point had sort of become and what it was being used for and the the fact is It's really hard to think of a way to deal with a character this powerful in a way that doesn't end him permanently. And so instead of ending him permanently, he's taken out of action. Not necessarily permanently. I mean, there could – you never know. There could be a a polar shift at some point in um, Earth's future. When you think about it, time is kind of on the the golem's side here. And so really what this does is it takes him out of action for now.
3: Yeah, it, it's, it's actually a really cool way to end the story because it is an ending of the villain that can totally be undone by any number of circumstances. Fuck, yeah. Luthor could come over and just free him again if he gets over the fact that, you know, the Earth was destroyed a few issues ago.
0: Right. And, and it seems like it's recovered nicely, by the way. <laughs> so anyway, all around, this is – I feel like this is a pretty worthy sort of sequel and at the same time at least – stopping point for what could be future storylines i don't think the golem ever comes back or if he does i'm maybe i'm just blanking on it i don't know i don't recall him coming back though so i think this truly is the last we see of him but as you say the possibility for future engagements is still out there and
3: according to mike's amazing world this is his last appearance oh it is okay well there you go unless there's some post-crisis revival of him
0: that i i'm i'm if, if, if there is, I'm completely blanking on that. I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm not. You see, it's kind of funny because you just said a minute ago, Superman's only as powerful as he needs to be in any given story. But I don't know. I just, I've, I've always kind of had a hard time convincing myself that the the burn age Superman could really hang with the Galactic Golem, as he's presented in these two issues. You know.
3: Well, I like your idea earlier that the Galactic Golem's post crisis version is Doomsday.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, and there is that, and obviously Superman really couldn't hang with him—at least not nope. at first. So maybe I was right after all. I don't know. It's it—it it, it just it plays it plays for me. This whole thing—it just it feels like it's very science fantasy. It's very of its time. This is, these are very Bronze Age type of stories to me, and I'm not saying that like I, I realize you're not uh, a huge Bronze Age expert at least yet. This isn't. The Bronze Age told other types of stories other than this. A lot of them were a lot more fun. A, um, a lot of them maybe were just as serious. A lot of them were just as earthbound. A lot of them were, you know, more uh, cosmic, I guess, and you had Superman flying all over the universe. And you had a really amazing diversity of material that you just don't get in comics anymore. And I don't want to sound like an old fart when I say that. I know I do. But it feels like every single storyline that we get these days has always got to be Superman up against some major world beater. And, yeah, the Galactic Golem could be a world beater, but that doesn't define every single Bronze Age story that came along. And Prosecution's Exhibit A on that is always going to be the aforementioned Superman number 246, where he fought a blob of slime. That was the big concept for that for that story he fought the blob you know um, from the movie the blob and you could get these these done in one stories or you could get these multi-part stories and they'd be fucking epic or you'd get these fun stories or action-packed stories or thought-provoking stories you know you'd get these different things and you just don't get that in comics anymore you know
3: yeah yeah I agree And comics these days the stories last for so long that I don't know. You feel like you have to make the person invest in five or six months of storytelling that you don't, if you had a, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. If you had a more free hand to the variety of stories, you could tell that the time and length really doesn't afford you. I think we would see more, but it's, it's kind of like the, um, this this is a really weird way to relate it to something completely unrelated, but people have been sort of disparaging the box office returns for Mm -hmm. Mm Ant-Man. And I feel like because Marvel has so many different movies out there, it can afford to have a lower playing installment. And it's not a bad thing at all That Ant-Man's box office returns are some of the lowest that Marvel Studios have seen. I don't think that's bad at all. I think that because they have such a wide variety and such a large number of films out there that they can afford to have a really fun, really well done movie that just doesn't sell as well. Uh, And so so comics today, they have so much time invested in these big epic arcs and so many events going on that that you're playing in between that you've got to make every moment count. And if you had more moments, you could afford for them to count less.
0: Yeah, I I, I tend to agree with that. And speaking of moments, though, this story has always felt a little truncated to me. I think that I think the standard length of stories At this point, probably we're closer to 18 pages. Here we get a 16-page story, and basically the action is moving hot and heavy on page 15. The story ends on page 16. We don't really get this moment of sort of falling action, as you do with the, the conventional action narrative. And I get the idea that even if we'd gotten just 17 pages rather than the full 18, this the I guess the conclusion to this story would have a chance to breathe a little bit more, but as it is, I mean, page 16, it begins with the golem being covered in all of that iron and nickel and all that other bullshit. And then he pretty much just gets abandoned. And so it's almost like the conclusion doesn't really have a chance to breathe before the story's over. And then we move on to, you know, sort of other things. And, I don't know. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a true thing. And so it's something to be aware of.
3: The format of the book had changed differently over the last 10 issues because 248 was a, was a quarter book, uh, 25 cents. It had three stories in it, 18-page Superman lead, 8-page um, World of Krypton backup, mm-hmm. and then a 12-page Superman reprint. Yes. That's a lot of comic. Yesterday. And it was a 48-page book. And now here we are 10 issues later. It's a standard size 32 pages, which is going to be the standard for comics forever after that, um, up till the current day. But they're still trying to tell multiple stories in a single issue because that had been the format. of, That's been DC's standard format forever. They have not yet become a publisher that will do one story that fills the entire book. By this point, they just haven't done that yet.
0: Yeah, it's a rare thing. Yeah.
3: And so they have 32 pages and they're still trying to squeeze multiple stories into it. So this one has 15, 16 rather. And the backup, The Private Life of Clark Kent, has seven and a half. It's eight pages, but half of the last page is an ad. Right. So they're trying to keep their identity and yet the market is changing. So it's a 20-cent book that is just very, very different to what it was a year earlier.
0: Yeah, and I was actually going to mention that as well, that it's funny that this was DC's, the Bronze Age, this was DC's like first real pass at, uh, I guess, keeping up with the Joneses as far as what Marvel was doing, but they were still trying to keep their own identity in terms of having backups and stuff. Because I don't think Marvel's, Marvel at that uh, at this point was really known for for its backups. You know, uh, basically all of their stories they were uh, novel length features. You know, and things like unless
3: that. unless you had the generically titled books such as Amazing Adventures, which would feature two things, but that was that was more of an experimental thing Marvel was doing in the '70s rather than the standard it was in the early '60s.
0: Correct. Yes. So. It's – this is – I've always kind of thought of this as being a sort of quintessential DC thing. And honestly, since we're on the subject, I've always liked the idea of of these backups and what they can do because, again, I like comics, and I like the stories that can be told in comics. And there are different types of stories you can tell in comics, one of the best examples of which being, as it goes for this issue, the private life of Clark Kent. And here's a guy – I've always thought of Superman as – He's not always bored. I don't want to characterize Superman as being bored, but he's a guy that in this iteration of the character, he does not need to sleep. And so when you think about the amount of hours that he's got to fill, it suddenly makes sense of things like the Fortress of Solitude. You know, Um, he needs it's not just that he needs downtime, which we all need, but he needs he need, he's got time that he needs to fill, and sometimes there's just not a huge emergency that requires Superman's intervention occurring somewhere or other in the world. I mean he lives in a D.C. world. There are other heroes that are out there doing the same things he does, and sometimes there's just not much for him to do.
3: It's not that he needs the downtime, but he has so much of it he's got to fill it.
0: Yeah, and so in this story, what we see is Clark – he basically follows one of his neighbors – you know this guy. He's just never really figured out. You know he doesn't know what this guy's deal is, and so he decides he's gonna bypass using his powers. He could he could solve this thing in two seconds if he just used his powers. But what he wants to do is just do things sort of the old-fashioned way. And so he follows him around as Clark Kent and tries to put. Uh, he kind of goes on this Dick Tracy thing where he tries to figure out based on clues who exactly Mister X is, what his job is, etc and eventually he does and number one this this is it's kind of a fun little story but number two it's the kind of thing that you can only do as a backup you can only really do something like this as an. you could not have a feature-length novel 22 pages or however long of clark following somebody around it's just too fucking boring but you can sure you can sure as shit have a an eight-page backup an eight-page story that that shows Clark just kind of having some fun and I just think this is the better way to do comics I I, I'm not trying to beat this thing to death but it 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 almost feels like you know you could mix this in as a subplot for a regular length issue a regular length story and get and and it would work but it to me it's it's just better to have it as a separate little storyline unto itself you know does that make I feel like I'm rambling here does that make sense
3: no, no, I get it. It is, it is the kind of idea that is fun to play with for seven and a half pages because we have a backup story and we're going to do this today. The idea that Clark Kent's like, oh, you know what? For shits and giggles, I'm just going to go do – I'm going to go play with my curiosity, be, be a little bit stalkery, let's admit it. Yeah. And just do it without my powers because I can and because it's, it's 1 o'clock in the fucking morning. I've got nothing else to do. Yeah. You know, you can only bang Lois Lane so many times before she gets tired and wants to sleep. Yeah, pretty. So, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah the super sperm. Yeah, you gotta. Even, not everyone can keep up with you, Clark. So,
3: I mean, really, if if we had a, a untold hours to fill and and a woman who is willing, that's exactly what we would do with all of our spare time. But um, but yeah, it's a fun little story. It's not going to fill a series. It might not even fill that many backups. But it's a fun idea to play with the idea of Superman because you have the space to do it.
0: Exactly, and it, and and it, it's an opportunity for more universe building. Or here's an idea: the world of Krypton.
3: You know, I love World of Krypton backups. Oh, I do. There, was too. A, there actually was a, a modern World of Krypton backup that started up right around the time of Man of Steel coming out. That was really fun and ended too soon.
0: Ah, well, and, and yeah, and that's actually sort of the the dark side of these of these backups is that sometimes they didn't go on as long or they didn't necessarily reach their full potential but damn it at least somebody tried okay right. and i don't know about you but i'd err on the side of something maybe not being fully explored as opposed to well anyway whatever so my point is i don't even remember what my point is i'm just i'm sure it was good now you got anything else uh, related to this issue
3: no i think i'm pretty much done
0: All right, well, um, first up, thank you again. I mean I'm not trying to beat this to death, but dude, you really are doing me a solid here with all this time that you're donating. And speaking of your time, uh, this is not the only podcast that you participate in. Uh, Where else is it that people can find you?
3: Well, even though this is coming out in March, I've been kind of a recording junkie over the summer. So there are lots of episodes of my two shows that I'm currently working on, which are – The New 52 Adventures of Superman, which I do mostly solo, although I'm having some guests on for these episodes that are coming out over um, the fall and uh, spring. So that can be found at new52superman.libson.com. And basically I'm talking my way through all of the current continuity Superman stories. uh, And the format I'm using is as I'm looking at their trade collections. So rather than going month by month or, or, or issue by issue, I'm taking story arc by story arc. And um, that's been really fun. I've kind of gotten back into that after some time off from the show and from modern – comics in general. It's kind of fun to get back into a continuity. Also very proud of the uh, the show that I do with my daughter, Avengers Inspirations, which is where she and I take a look back at all the early Marvel comics that feature characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So you have your Avengers, you have all of your solo Avengers stories, but you don't so much have your Fantastic Four or X-Men. You do, however, have your Spider-Man, because he is now a Marvel Cinematic Universe character. So she and I have been having fun with the old Spider-Man comics, which really are my, you know, there's a, there's a phrase being tossed around the comics community these days, finding your joy. 1960s Spider-Man. That is candy for me. I love that stuff. And, uh, yeah. So those that can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website under the Podcast tab or by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order on iTunes. So those are my two shows. Have, I have a lot of fun doing them. And if you give a listen, please send me an email. Let me know what you think.
0: Awesome. Um, and, and and speaking as a listener, an itinerant listener, I'm actually kind of behind but uh, nevertheless, speaking as a listener that that's actually a, a phenomenal show. I really enjoy it so
3: oh,' I'm glad, I'm glad you do so. that's, that's really neat. So, uh, we have fun making it.
0: Sorry. Uh, no I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but yeah and, and uh, you know and that's the thing it actually it, that comes across you know I think one of the the best, most entertaining aspects of any, podcast is whenever you can hear that the host is having the time of his life talking about this stuff like you say comic book joy that seems to be kind of the uh, the catchphrase and kudos to michael bailey and the irredeemable shag for coming up with that but it's not just a philosophy at this point it really is kind of it's part of the lexicon now but damned if that doesn't make a difference dude because whenever whenever people podcast look it's fun sometimes to listen to people rant you can only take so much of that stuff, and then eventually what you want is for somebody to just uh, change your fucking tampon, dude. I mean, uh, figure something <laughs> out. You know?
3: Yeah, it's it's fun. While you're in the midst of something you enjoy, it can be fun to go and sort of tear something apart, but there's only so much rage that A, I can vent, and that B, I would want to listen to. Yeah. Eventually, you gotta come back to having fun with comics because they're comics. They're funny books. They're fun. Or they're supposed to be. And if they're not, then... then you need to make some changes, else. man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sorry, but this is supposed to be fiction that entertains. It shouldn't... Well, whatever. Uh, I'll, yeah, whatever. I think we agree there. So Now, that's pretty much it for this week. Now, as to next week, unfortunately uh john isn't going to be able to uh join me for this because uh, in point of fact i've actually already recorded uh this episode you could call this the butt crack of dawn for the golden age uh batman this is detective comics number 28 through number 27 and basically what i decided to do was sit down
3: you just said 28 through 27
0: oh sorry 28 through 37 my apologies. 28 through 30... Uh, Detective Comics number 27, I've actually talked about in a previous episode, but... Detective Comics 28 to 37, in like... I think that's 1939 and 1940. Basically, I wanted a chance to sort of just take a take a long look back at what I considered to be one of the great runs, and kind of unappreciated runs, of of Batman comics. And so, I already recorded that quite a while ago, so unfortunately... You know, John's not going to be able to join me for that, and honestly, he and I have so much else to work through. I think that's maybe going to be a benefit in the, you know, in the long term. No offense to you, John.
3: (laughs) There's only so many, you know, Friday mornings we can get together, so there are only so many stories we can do. And I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it because I really like that era of Batman. I like that era of comics in general. I'm a big Golden Age buff. In fact, I didn't mention it because I'm not currently making episodes, but I do have. You know the first thirty odd months of Golden Age Superman podcasted about out at goldenagesuperman. dot So looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Batman, because uh, it's 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 a fun run, his early days.
0: I agree, and some of the best stuff, actually. One, I not I shouldn't say best, but some really entertaining stuff came out of that era. And so you could kind of see that era when Bob Kane and Bill Finger, or maybe just Bill Finger, or maybe just Bob Kane, depending on how you want to look at things. They were trying to figure out who this character is and what best makes him tick. And so it, it's one thing for us these days to look back at all that and understand and we know what it is that that makes Batman work. They didn't know that back then. And so there's a growth curve that they're going through that I think is is incredibly fascinating. So anyway, but that's, that's next week. As I say, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So uh, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Exactly that.
4: Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here with a trailer for an exciting series of episodes of Views from the Longbox. To help me with this trailer, I have brought along none other than Darth Vader. What is thy bidding, my master? I, uh... I had to pay extra for that one. Now, normally on Views, I talk about comics, either alone or with a friend. However, with The Force Awakens hitting theaters soon, I have been all excited for Star Wars. And with the sudden massive amount of free time I have found myself with, I decided to devote all of the December episodes of Views to Star Wars in a series I am calling Views Views from a Galaxy galaxy Far, Far away. Away. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. Well, that was, That's was kind of rude. I mean, I, I would think a Dark Lord of the Sith would be happy that I'm devoting a month of shows to Star Wars. Don't make me destroy you. Look, Vader, we had a deal. I was going to tell everybody about how I'm going to talk about my favorite Star Wars movies, my favorite characters and comics and toys in addition to talking about The Force Awakens. You were supposed to back me up on this. I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. Well, fine then. Can I at least talk about how I am bringing some of the best and brightest in podcasting along with me on this endeavor? And that the show is going to be weekly through the month of December?
2: The Emperor does not share your optimistic appraisal of the situation.
4: The Emperor will be listening? Yeah. then I will have to double my efforts. Apology accepted. I did not ap- you know what, never mind. What everybody needs to know is that Views from a Galaxy galaxy Far, Far Away starts December 1st here at Views from the Long Box. You can find the show on iTunes or by going to www.viewsfromthelongbox.com
1: We would be honored if you would join us.
4: Finally, you stuck to the script. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Views from a Galaxy galaxy Far, far 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 Away starting December 1st. Only at Views from the Long Box.
0: Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only.